Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 4, Chapter 1 of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 4, Chapter 1 Good Souls Sixteen years previous to the epoch when this story takes place, one fine morning, on Quasimodo Sunday, a living creature had been deposited, after Mass, in the church of Notre Dame, on the wooden bed securely fixed in the vestibule on the left, opposite that great image of St. Christopher, which the figure of Monsieur Antoine de Chartres, Chevalier, carved in stone, had been gazing at on his knee since 1413 when they took it into their heads to overthrow the saint and the faithful follower. Upon this bed of wood it was customary to expose foundlings for public charity. Whoever cared to take them did so. In front of the wooden bed was a copper basin for alms. The sort of living being which lay upon that plank on the morning of Quasimodo, in the year of the Lord, 1467, appeared to excite to a high degree the curiosity of the numerous group which had congregated about the wooden bed. The group was formed for the most part of the fair sex. Hardly any one was there except old women. In the first row, and among those who were most bent over the bed, four were noticeable, who, from their grey cagoulet, a sort of cassock, were recognizable as attached to some devout sisterhood. I do not see why history has not transmitted to posterity the names of these four discreet and venerable damsels. They were Agnes la Hermée, Jeanne de la Tarme, Henriette la Gautier, Goncher la Violette, all four widows, all four dames of the chapel Etienne Audry, who had quitted their house with the permission of their mistress, and in conformity with the statutes of Pierre Dali, in order to come and hear the sermon. However, if these good Audriettes were, for the moment, complying with the statutes of Pierre Dali, they certainly violated with joy those of Michel de Brach and the Cardinal of Pisa, which so inhumanly enjoined silence upon them. "'What is this, sister?' said Agnes to Gaucher, gazing at the little creature exposed, which was screaming and writhing on the wooden bed, terrified by so many glances. "'What is to become of us,' said Jehan, "'if that is the way children are made now?' "'I'm not learned in the matter of children,' resumed Agnes. "'But it must be a sin to look at this one.' "'Tis not a child, Agnes.' "'Tis an abortion of a monkey,' remarked Gaucher. "'Tis a miracle,' interposed Henriette Lagotier. "'Then,' remarked Agnes, "'it is the third since the Sunday of the Loatare, for in less than a week we had the miracle of the mocker of the pilgrims divinely punished by Notre-Dame d'Aubervilliers, and that was the second miracle within a month. "'This pretended foundling is a real monster of abomination,' resumed Jehan. "'He yells loud enough to deafen a chanter.' continued Gaucher, 
Hold your tongue, you little howler! To think that Monsieur of Rheims sent this enormity to Monsieur of Paris, added La Gautier, clasping her hands. I imagine, said Agnes La Herme, that it is a beast, an animal, the fruit of a Jew and a sow, something not Christian, in short, which ought to be thrown into the fire or into the water. I really hope, resumed La Gautier, that nobody will apply for it. Ah, good heavens! exclaimed Agnes. Those poor nurses yonder in the foundling asylum, which forms the lower end of the lane as you go to the river, just beside Monseigneur the bishop. What if this little monster were to be carried to them to suckle? I'd rather give suck to a vampire. How innocent that poor La Herme is, resumed Jehan. Don't you see, sister, that this little monster is at least four years old, and that he would have less appetite for your breast than for a turnspit? The little monster, we should find it difficult ourselves to describe him otherwise, was in fact not a newborn child. It was a very angular and very lively little mass, imprisoned in its linen sack, stamped with the cipher of Monsieur Guillaume Chartier, then Bishop of Paris, with a head projecting. That head was deformed enough. One beheld only a forest of red hair, one eye, a mouth, and teeth. The eye wept, the mouth cried, and the teeth seemed to ask only to be allowed to bite. The whole struggled in the sack, to the great consternation of the crowd, which increased and was renewed incessantly around it. Dame Alois de Gondelaurier, a rich and noble woman, who held by the hand a pretty girl about five or six years of age, and dragged a long veil about, suspended to the golden horn of her headdress, halted as she passed the wooden bed, and gazed for a moment at the wretched creature, while her charming little daughter, Fleur-de-Lis de Gondelaurier, spelled out with her tiny, pretty finger the permanent inscription attached to the wooden bed, Foundlings. Really, said the dame, turning away in disgust, I thought that they only exposed children here. She turned her back, throwing into the basin a silver florin, which rang among the liards and made the poor goodwives of the chapel of Etienne-Audry open their eyes. A moment later, the grave and learned Robert Mistricot, the king's protonotary, passed, with an enormous missile under one arm and his wife on the other. Demoiselle Guillaumette la Marès, having thus by his side his two regulators, spiritual and temporal. Foundling, he said, after examining the object, found, apparently, on the banks of the river Phlegathon. One can only see one eye, observed Demoiselle Guillaumette. There is a wart on the other. It is not a wart, returned Master Robert Mistricot. It is an egg which contains another demon exactly similar, who bears another little egg which contains another devil, and so on." "'How do you know that?' asked Guillaumette Lamarès. "'I know it pertinently,' replied the protonotary. "'Monsieur le protonotary,' asked Gaucher, "'what do you prognosticate of this pretended foundling?' "'The greatest misfortunes.' replied Mr. Coe. "'Ah, good heavens!' said an old woman among the spectators. 
and that, besides our having had a considerable pestilence last year, and that they say that the English are going to disembark in a company at Arfleur. Perhaps that will prevent the Queen from coming to Paris in the month of September, interposed another. Trade is so bad already. My opinion is, exclaimed Jehan de la Torme, that it would be better for the louts of Paris if this little magician were put to bed on a faggot than on a plank. A fine flaming faggot, added the old woman. It would be more prudent, said Mr. Coe. For several minutes a young priest had been listening to the reasoning of the Audriettes and the sentences of the notary. He had a severe face, with a large brow, a profound glance. He thrust the crowd silently aside, scrutinized the little magician, and stretched out his hand upon him. It was high time, for all the devotees had already licked their chops over the fine flaming faggot. "'I adopt this child,' said the priest. He took it in his cassock and carried it off. The spectators followed him with frightened glances. A moment later he had disappeared through the red door which then led from the church to the cloister. When the first surprise was over, Jehan de la Tarme bent down to the ear of La Gautier. "'I told you, sister, that young clerk, Monsieur Claude Frollo, is a sorcerer.' End of Book Four, Chapter One Book Four, Chapter Two of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Four, Chapter Two Claude Frollo. In fact, Claude Frollo was no common person. He belonged to one of those middle-class families which were called, indifferently, in the impertinent language of the last century, the high bourgeois, or the petty nobility. This family had inherited from the brothers Paclet the fief of Tirechappet, which was dependent upon the Bishop of Paris, and whose twenty-one houses had been in the thirteenth century the object of so many suits before the official. As possessor of this fief, Claude Frollo was one of the twenty-seven seigneurs keeping claim to a manor in fee in Paris and its suburbs. And for a long time his name was to be seen inscribed in this quality, between the Hôtel de Tancarville belonging to Master François Leray and the College of Tours in the records deposited at Saint-Martin-des-Champs. Claude Frollo had been destined from infancy by his parents to the ecclesiastical profession. He had been taught to read in Latin, he had been trained to keep his eyes on the ground and to speak low. While still a child his father had cloistered him in the College of Torchi in the university. There it was that he had grown up, on the Missal and the Lexicon. Moreover he was a sad, grave, serious child, who studied ardently and learned quickly. He never uttered a loud cry in recreation hour mixed but little in the bacchanals of the Rue de Fouare, did not know what it was to dari alapas et capillos laniare, and cut no figure in that revolt of 1463, which the analysts register gravely under the title of the Sixth Trouble of the University. He seldom rallied the poor students of Montaigu on the capets, 
from which they derived their name, or the bursars of the College of Dormans on their shaved tonsure, and their surtout, party-colored of bluish-green, blue and violet cloth, azurini coloris et bruni, as says the charter of the Cardinal des Quatre Corons. On the other hand, he was assiduous at the great and the small schools of the Rue Saint-Jean de Beauvais. The first pupil, whom the Abbé de Saint-Pierre-de-Val, at the moment of beginning his reading on canon law, always perceived, glued to a pillar of the school saint Vendregisile, opposite his rostrum, was Claude Frollo, armed with his horn ink-bottle, biting his pen, scribbling on his threadbare knee, and in winter, blowing on his fingers. The first auditor, whom Monsieur Mildillier, doctor in decretals, saw arrive every Monday morning, all breathless, at the opening of the gates of the school of the chef Saint-Denis, was Claude Frollo. Thus, at sixteen years of age, the young clerk might have held his own, in mystical theology, against a father of the church, in canonical theology, against a father of the councils, in scholastic theology, against a doctor of the Sorbonne. Theology conquered, he had plunged into decretals. From the master of sentences he had passed to the capitularies of Charlemagne, and he had devoured in succession, in his appetite for science, decretals upon decretals, those of Theodore, bishop of Hispalus, those of Bouchard, bishop of Worms, those of Eves, bishop of Chartres, next the decretal of Gratian, which succeeded the capitularies of Charlemagne then the collection of Gregory the Ninth, then the epistle of Superspecula, of Honorius the Third. He rendered clear and familiar to himself that vast and tumultuous period of civil law and canon law in conflict and at strife with each other, in the chaos of the Middle Ages, a period which Bishop Theodore opens in 618 and which Pope Gregory closes in 1227. Decretals digested, he flung himself upon medicine, on the liberal arts. He studied the science of herbs, the science of unguents. He became an expert in fevers and in contusions, in sprains and abscesses. Jacques Despard would have received him as a physician, Richard Helene as a surgeon. He also passed through all the degrees of licentiate, master and doctor of arts. He studied the languages, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, a triple sanctuary then very little frequented. His was a veritable fever for acquiring and hoarding in the matter of science. At the age of eighteen he had made his way through the four faculties. It seemed to the young man that life had but one sole object—learning. It was towards this epoch that the excessive heat of the summer of 1466 caused that grand outburst of the plague which carried off more than forty thousand souls in the Vicomte of Paris, and among others, as Jean de Troyes states, Master Arnaud, astrologer to the king, who was a very fine man, both wise and pleasant. The rumor spread in the university that the Rue Tirechappé was especially devastated by the malady. It was there that Claude's parents resided, in the midst of their fief. The young scholar rushed in great alarm to the paternal mansion. When he entered it, he found that both father and mother had died on the preceding day. A very young brother of his, who was in swaddling clothes, was still alive, and crying abandoned in his cradle. 
This was all that remained to Claude of his family. The young man took the child under his arm and went off in a pensive mood. Up to that moment he had lived only in science. He now began to live in life. This catastrophe was a crisis in Claude's existence. Orphaned, the eldest head of the family at the age of nineteen, he felt himself rudely recalled from the reveries of school to the realities of this world. Then, moved with pity, he was seized with passion and devotion towards that child, his brother. A sweet and strange thing was a human affection to him who had hitherto loved his books alone. This affection developed to a singular point. In a soul so new it was like a first love, separated since infancy from his parents, whom he had hardly known, cloistered and immured, as it were, in his books, eager above all things to study and to learn, exclusively attentive up to that time to his intelligence, which broadened in science, to his imagination, which expanded in letters. The poor scholar had not yet had time to feel the place of his heart. This young brother, without mother or father, this little child which had fallen abruptly from heaven into his arms, made a new man of him. He perceived that there was something else in the world besides the speculations of the Sorbonne and the verses of Homer. That man needed affections. That life without tenderness and without love was only a set of dry, shrieking, and rending wheels. Only, he imagined, for he was at the age when illusions are as yet replaced only by illusions, that the affections of blood and family were the sole ones necessary, and that a little brother to love sufficed to fill an entire existence. He threw himself, therefore, into the love for his little Jahan with the passion of a character already profound, ardent, concentrated. That poor, frail creature, pretty, fair-haired, rosy, and curly, that orphan with another orphan for his only support, touched him to the bottom of his heart. And, grave thinker as he was, he was set to meditating upon Jehan with an infinite compassion. He kept watch and ward over him as over something very fragile and very worthy of care. He was more than a brother to the child, he became a mother to him. Little Jehan had lost his mother while he was still at the breast. Claude gave him to a nurse. Besides the fief of Tirechappé, he had inherited from his father the fief of Molan, which was a dependency of the square tower of Gentilly. It was a mill on a hill, near the chateau of Winchester, Bicetra. There was a miller's wife there, who was nursing a fine child. It was not far from the university, and Claude carried the little Jehan to her in his own arms. From that time forth, feeling that he had a burden to bear, he took life very seriously. The thought of his little brother became not only his recreation, but the object of his studies. He resolved to consecrate himself entirely to a future for which he was responsible in the sight of God, and never to have any other wife any other child than the happiness and fortune of his brother. Therefore he attached himself more closely than ever to the clerical profession. His merits, his learning, his quality of immediate vassal of the Bishop of Paris, threw the doors of the church wide open to him. 
at the age of twenty, by special dispensation of the Holy See, he was a priest, and served as the youngest of the chaplains of Notre-Dame, the altar which is called, because of the late mass which is said there, Altari Pigrorum. There, plunged more deeply than ever in his dear books, which he quitted only to run for an hour to the fief of Moulin, this mixture of learning and austerity, so rare at his age, had promptly acquired for him the respect and admiration of the monastery. From the cloister his reputation as a learned man had passed to the people, among whom it had changed a little, a frequent occurrence at that time, into reputation as a sorcerer. It was at the moment when he was returning, on Quasimodo Day, from saying his mass at the altar of the lazy, which was by the side of the door leading to the nave on the right, near the image of the Virgin, that his attention had been attracted by the group of old women chattering around the bed for foundlings. Then it was that he approached the unhappy little creature, which was so hated and so menaced. That distress, that deformity, that abandonment, the thought of his young brother, the idea which suddenly occurred to him that if he were to die, his dear little Jehan might also be flung miserably on the plank for foundlings. All this had gone to his heart simultaneously. A great pity had moved in him, and he had carried off the child. When he removed the child from the sack, he found it greatly deformed, in very sooth. The poor little wretch had a wart on his left eye, his head placed directly on his shoulders, his spinal column was crooked, his breast-bone prominent, and his legs bowed. But he appeared to be lively, and although it was impossible to say in what language he lisped, his cry indicated considerable force and health. Claude's compassion increased at the sight of his ugliness, and he made a vow in his heart to rear the child for the love of his brother, in order that, whatever might be the future faults of the little Jehan, he would have beside him that charity done for his sake. It was a sort of investment in good works, which he was effecting in the name of his young brother. It was a stock of good works, which he wished to amass in advance for him, in case the little rogue should some day find himself short of that coin, the only sort which is received at the toll-bar of paradise. He baptized his adopted child, and gave him the name of Quasimodo, either because he desired thereby to mark the day when he had found him, or because he wished to designate by that name to what a degree the poor little creature was incomplete, and hardly sketched out. In fact, Quasimodo, blind, hunchbacked, knock-kneed, was only an almost. End of Book Four, Chapter Two Book Four, Chapter Three of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Four, Chapter Three Imanis Picoris Custos, Imanior Ipse. Now, in 1482, Quasimodo had grown up. He had become, a few years previously, the bell ringer of Notre Dame thanks to his father by adoption, Claude Frollo, who had become archdeacon of José, thanks to his suzerain, Monsieur Louis de Beaumont, 
who had become a bishop of Paris at the death of Guillaume Chartier in 1472, thanks to his patron, Olivier la Dame, barber to Louis XI, king by the grace of God. So Quasimodo was the ringer of the chimes of Notre Dame. In the course of time there had been formed a certain peculiarly intimate bond which united the ringer to the church. Separated forever from the world, by the double fatality of his unknown birth and his natural deformity, imprisoned from his infancy in that impassable double circle, the poor wretch had grown used to seeing nothing in this world beyond the religious walls which had received him under their shadow. Notre Dame had been to him successively, as he grew up and developed, the egg, the nest, the house, the country, the universe. There was certainly a sort of mysterious and pre-existing harmony between this creature and this church. When, still a little fellow, he had dragged himself tortuously and by jerks beneath the shadows of its vaults, he seemed, with his human face and his bestial limbs, the natural reptile of that humid and sombre pavement, upon which the shadow of the Romanesque capitals cast so many strange forms. Later on, the first time that he caught hold, mechanically, of the ropes to the towers, and hung suspended from them, and set the bell to clanging, it produced upon his adopted father, Claude, the effect of a child whose tongue is unloosed and who begins to speak. It is thus that, little by little, developing always in sympathy with the cathedral, living there, sleeping there, hardly ever leaving it, subject every hour to the mysterious impress, he came to resemble it, he encrusted himself in it, so to speak, and became an integral part of it. His salient angles fitted into the retreating angles of the cathedral, if he may be allowed this figure of speech and he seemed not only its inhabitant, but more than that, its natural tenant. One might almost say that he had assumed its form, as the snail takes on the form of its shell. It was his dwelling, his hole, his envelope. There existed between him and the old church so profound an instinctive sympathy, so many magnetic affinities, so many material affinities, that he adhered to it somewhat as a tortoise adheres to its shell. The rough and wrinkled cathedral was his shell. It is useless to warn the reader not to take literally all the similes which we are obliged to employ here, to express the singular, symmetrical, direct, almost consubstantial union of a man and an edifice. It is equally unnecessary to state to what a degree that the whole cathedral was familiar to him, after so long and so intimate a cohabitation. That dwelling was peculiar to him. It had no depths to which Quasimodo had not penetrated, no height which he had not scaled. He often climbed many stones up the front, aided solely by the uneven points of the carving. The towers, on whose exterior surface he was frequently seen clambering, like a lizard gliding along a perpendicular wall, those two gigantic twins, so lofty, so menacing, so formidable, possessed for him neither vertigo, nor terror, nor shocks of amazement. 
To see them so gentle under his hand, so easy to scale, one would have said that he had tamed them. By dint of leaping, climbing, gambling amid the abysses of the gigantic cathedral, he had become, in some sort, a monkey and a goat, like the Calabrian child who swims before he walks, and plays with the sea while still a babe. Moreover, it was not his body alone which seemed fashioned after the cathedral, but his mind also. In what condition was that mind? What bent had it contracted? What form had it assumed beneath that knotted envelope in that savage life? This it would be hard to determine. Quasimodo had been born one-eyed, hunchbacked, lame. It was with great difficulty, and by dint of great patience, that Claude Frollo had succeeded in teaching him to talk. But a fatality was attached to the poor foundling. Bell-ringer of Notre-Dame at the age of fourteen, a new infirmity had come to complete his misfortunes. The bells had broken the drums of his ears. He had become deaf. The only gate which nature had left wide open for him had been abruptly closed and forever. In closing, it had cut off the only ray of joy and of light which still made its way into the soul of Quasimodo. His soul fell into profound night. The wretched being's misery became as incurable and as complete as his deformity. Let us add that his deafness rendered him to some extent dumb for, in order not to make others laugh, the very moment that he found himself to be deaf, he resolved upon a silence which he only broke when he was alone. He voluntarily tied that tongue which Claude Frollo had taken so much pains to unloose. Hence it came about that, when necessity constrained him to speak, his tongue was torpid, awkward, and like a door whose hinges had grown rusty. If now we were to try to penetrate to the soul of Quasimodo through that thick hard rind, if we could sound the depths of that badly constructed organism, if it were granted to us to look with a torch behind those non-transparent organs, to explore the shadowy interior of that opaque creature, to elucidate his obscure corners, his absurd no-thoroughfares and suddenly to cast a vivid light upon the soul enchained at the extremity of that cave, we should, no doubt, find the unhappy psyche in some poor, cramped, and rickety attitude, like those prisoners beneath the leads of Venice, who grew old bent double in a stone box which was both too low and too short for them. It is certain that the mind becomes atrophied in a defective body. Quasimodo was barely conscious of a soul cast in his own image, moving blindly within him. The impressions of objects underwent a considerable refraction before reaching his mind. His brain was a peculiar medium. The ideas which passed through it issued forth completely distorted. The reflection which resulted from this refraction was, necessarily, divergent and perverted. Hence a thousand optical illusions, a thousand aberrations of judgment, a thousand deviations which his thought strayed, now mad, now idiotic. The first effect of this fatal organization was to trouble the glance which he cast upon things. 
he received hardly any immediate perception of them. The external world seemed much farther away to him than it does to us. The second effect of his misfortune was to render him malicious. He was malicious, in fact, because he was savage. He was savage because he was ugly. There was logic in his nature, as there is in ours. His strength, so extraordinarily developed, was a cause of still greater malevolence. Malus puer robustus, says Hobbes. This injustice must, however, be rendered to him. Malevolence was not, perhaps, innate in him. From his very first steps among men he had felt himself, later on he had seen himself, spewed out, blasted, rejected. Human words were for him always a raillery or a malediction. As he grew up he had found nothing but hatred around him. He had caught the general malevolence. He had picked up the weapon with which he had been wounded. After all, he turned his face towards men only with reluctance. His cathedral was sufficient for him. It was peopled with marble figures, kings, saints, bishops, who at least did not burst out laughing in his face, who gazed upon him only with tranquillity and kindliness. The other statues, those of the monsters and demons, cherished no hatred for him Quasimodo. He resembled them too much for that. They seemed rather to be scoffing at other men. The saints were his friends and blessed him. The monsters were his friends and guarded him. So he held long communion with them. He sometimes passed whole hours crouching before one of these statues in solitary conversation with it. If anyone came, he fled like a lover surprised in his serenade. And the cathedral was not only society for him, but the universe and all nature beside. He dreamed of no other hedgerows than the painted windows, always in flower, no other shade than that of the foliage of stone which spread out, loaded with birds, in the tufts of the Saxon capitals, of no other mountains than the colossal towers of the church, of no other ocean than Paris, roaring at their bases. What he loved above all else in the maternal edifice, that which aroused his soul and made it open its poor wings, which kept it so miserably folded in its cavern, that which sometimes rendered him even happy, was the bells. He loved them, fondled them, talked to them, understood them. From the chime in the spire, over the intersection of the aisles and the nave, to the great bell of the front, he cherished a tenderness for them all. The central spire and the two towers were to him as three great cages, whose birds, reared by himself, sang for him alone. Yet it was these very bells which had made him deaf. But mothers often love best that child which has caused them the most suffering. It is true that their voice was the only one which he could still hear. On this score the big bell was his beloved. It was she whom he preferred out of all that family of noisy girls which bustled above him, on festival days. This bell was named Marie. She was alone in the southern tower, with her sister Jacqueline, a bell of lesser size, shut up in a smaller cage beside hers. This Jacqueline was so called from the name of the wife of Jean Montague, who had given it to the church, 
which had not prevented his going and figuring without his head at Montfaucon. In the second tower there were six other bells, and finally six smaller ones inhabited the belfry over the crossing, with the wooden bell which rang only between after dinner on Good Friday and the morning of the day before Easter. So Quasimodo had fifteen bells in his seraglio, but Big Marie was his favorite. No idea can be formed of his delight on days when the grand peal was sounded. At the moment when the archdeacon dismissed him and said, Go, he mounted the spiral staircase of the clock-tower faster than anyone else could have descended it. He entered perfectly breathless into the aerial chamber of the great bell. He gazed at her a moment, devoutly and lovingly. Then he gently addressed her and patted her with his hand, like a good horse, which is about to set out on a long journey. He pitied her for the trouble she was about to suffer. After these first caresses he shouted to his assistants, placed in the lower story of the tower, to begin. They grasped the ropes, the wheel creaked, the enormous capsule of metal started slowly into motion. Quasimodo followed it with his glance and trembled. The first shock of the clapper and the brazen wall made the framework upon which it was mounted quiver. Quasimodo vibrated with the bell. Vah! he cried, with a senseless burst of laughter. However, the great movement of the base was accelerated, and, in proportion as it described a wider angle, Quasimodo's eye opened also more and more widely, phosphoric and flaming. At length the grand peal began. The whole tower trembled. Woodwork, leads, cut stones all groaned at once, from the piles of the foundation to the trefoils of its summit. Then Quasimodo boiled and frothed. He went and came. He trembled from head to foot with the tower. The bell, furious, running riot, presented to the two walls of the tower alternately its brazen throat whence escaped that tempestuous breath, which is audible leagues away. Quasimodo stationed himself in front of this open throat. He crouched and rose with the oscillations of the bell, breathed in this overwhelming breath, gazed by turns at the deep place which swarmed with people two hundred feet below him, and at that enormous brazen tongue which came, second after second, to howl in his ear. It was the only speech which he understood, the only sound which broke for him the universal silence. He swelled out in it as a bird does in the sun. All of a sudden the frenzy of the bell seized upon him. His look became extraordinary. He lay in wait for the great bell as it passed, as a spider lies in wait for a fly, and flung himself abruptly upon it, with might and main. Then, suspended above the abyss, borne to and fro by the formidable swinging of the bell, he seized the brazen monster by the earlaps, pressed it between both knees, spurred it on with his heels, and redoubled the fury of the peal with the whole shock and weight of his body. Meanwhile the tower trembled. He shrieked and gnashed his teeth, his red hair rose erect, his breast heaving like a bellows. His eye flashed flames, the monstrous bell neighed, panting beneath him. 
and then it was no longer the great bell of Notre-Dame nor Quasimodo. It was a dream, a whirlwind, a tempest, dizziness mounted astride of noise, a spirit clinging to a flying crupper, a strange centaur, half man, half bell, a sort of horrible astolphus, borne away upon a prodigious hippogriff of living bronze. The presence of this extraordinary being caused, as it were, a breath of life to circulate through the entire cathedral. It seemed as though there escaped from him, at least according to the growing superstitions of the crowd, a mysterious emanation which animated all the stones of Notre-Dame, and made the deep bowels of the ancient church to palpitate. It sufficed for people to know that he was there, to make them believe that they beheld the thousand statues of the galleries and the fronts in motion. And the cathedral did indeed seem a docile and obedient creature beneath his hand. It waited on his will to raise its great voice. It was possessed and filled with Quasimodo, as with a familiar spirit. One would have said that he made the immense edifice breathe. He was everywhere about it. In fact, he multiplied himself on all points of the structure. Now one perceived with affright at the very top of one of the towers a fantastic dwarf climbing, writhing, crawling on all fours, descending outside above the abyss, leaping from projection to projection, and going to ransack the belly of some sculptured gorgon. It was Quasimodo dislodging the crows. Again, in some obscure corner of the church, one came in contact with a sort of living chimera, crouching and scowling. It was Quasimodo engaged in thought. Sometimes one caught sight, upon a bell-tower, of an enormous head and a bundle of disordered limbs swinging furiously at the end of a rope. It was Quasimodo ringing vespers or the angelus. Often at night a hideous form was seen wandering along the frail balustrade of carved lacework which crowns the towers and borders of the circumference of the apse. Again it was the hunchback of Notre-Dame. Then, said the women of the neighborhood, the whole church took on something fantastic, supernatural, horrible. Eyes and mouths were open here and there. One heard the dogs, the monsters, and the gargoyles of stone, which keep watch night and day, with outstretched neck and open jaws, around the monstrous cathedral, barking. And, if it was a Christmas Eve, while the great bell, which seemed to emit the death-rattle, summoned the faithful to the midnight mass, such an air was spread over the sombre façade that one would have declared that the grand portal was devouring the throng, and that the rose-window was watching it. And all this came from Quasimodo. Egypt would have taken him for the god of this temple. The Middle Ages believed him to be its demon. He was, in fact, its soul. To such an extent was this disease that for those who know that Quasimodo existed, Notre-Dame is to-day deserted, inanimate, dead. One feels that something has disappeared from it. That immense body is empty. It is a skeleton. The spirit has quitted it. One sees its place, and that is all. It is like a skull which still has holes for the eyes, but no longer sight. 
End of Book 4, Chapter 3《Four Chapter Four of the Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Four Chapter Four The Dog and His Master. Nevertheless, there was one human creature whom Quasimodo accepted from his malice and from his hatred for others, and whom he loved even more, perhaps, than his cathedral. This was Claude Frollo. The matter was simple. Claude Frollo had taken him in, had adopted him, had nourished him, had reared him. When a little lad, it was between Claude Frollo's legs that he was accustomed to seek refuge, when the dogs and the children barked after him. Claude Frollo had taught him to talk, to read, to write. Claude Frollo had finally made him the bell-ringer. Now to give the big bell in marriage to Quasimodo was to give Juliet to Romeo. Hence Quasimodo's gratitude was profound, passionate, boundless, and although the visage of his adopted father was often clouded or severe, although his speech was habitually curt, harsh, imperious, that gratitude never wavered for a single moment. The archdeacon had in Quasimodo the most submissive slave, the most docile lackey, the most vigilant of dogs. When the poor bell-ringer became deaf, there had been established between him and Claude Frollo a language of signs, mysterious and understood by themselves alone. In this manner the archdeacon was the sole human being with whom Quasimodo had preserved communication. He was in sympathy with but two things in this world, Notre-Dame and Claude Frollo. There is nothing which can be compared with the empire of the archdeacon over the bell-ringer with the attachment of the bell-ringer for the archdeacon. A sign from Claude, and the idea of giving him pleasure, would have sufficed to make Quasimodo hurl himself headlong from the summit of Notre-Dame. It was a remarkable thing. All that physical strength which had reached in Quasimodo such an extraordinary development, and which was placed by him blindly at the disposition of another. There was in it, no doubt, filial devotion, domestic attachment. There was also the fascination of one spirit by another spirit. It was a poor, awkward, and clumsy organization which stood with lowered head and supplicating eyes before a lofty and profound, a powerful and superior intellect. Lastly, and above all, it was gratitude gratitude so pushed to its extremest limit that we do not know to what to compare it. This virtue is not one of those of which the finest examples are to be met with among men. We will say, then, that Quasimodo loved the archdeacon as never a dog, never a horse, never an elephant loved his master. End of Book Four, Chapter Four Book Four, Chapter Five of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Four, Chapter Five More About Claude Frollo. In 1482, Quasimodo was about twenty years of age. 
Claude Frollo, about thirty-six. One had grown up, the other had grown old. Claude Frollo was no longer the simple scholar of the College of Torch, the tender protector of a little child, the young and dreamy philosopher who knew many things and was ignorant of many. He was a priest, austere, grave, morose, one charged with souls. Monsieur the Archdeacon of José, the bishop's second acolyte, having charge of the two deaneries of Monterie and Chateau Four, and one hundred and seventy-four country curacies. He was an imposing and sombre personage, before whom the choir-boys in alb and in jacket trembled as well as the Machicot and the brothers of St. Augustine and the matutinal clerks of Notre-Dame when he passed slowly beneath the lofty arches of the choir, majestic, thoughtful, with arms folded and his head so bent upon his breast that all one saw of his face was his large, bald brow. Dom Claude Frollo had, however, abandoned neither science nor the education of his young brother those two occupations of his life. But as time went on, some bitterness had been mingled with these things which were so sweet. In the long run, says Paul Diacre, the best lard turns rancid. Little Jehan Frollo, surnamed Dumoulin of the Mill, because of the place where he had been reared, had not grown up in the direction which Claude would have liked to impose upon him. The big brother counted upon a pious, docile, learned, and honourable pupil. But the little brother, like those young trees which deceive the gardener's hopes, and turn obstinately to the quarter whence they receive sun and air, the little brother did not grow and did not multiply, but only put forth fine, bushy, and luxuriant branches on the side of laziness, ignorance, and debauchery. He was a regular devil, and a very disorderly one, who made Dom Claude scowl. But very droll, and very subtle, which made the big brother smile. Claude had confided him to that same college of Torchy where he had passed his early years in study and meditation, and it was a grief to him that this sanctuary, formerly edified by the name of Frollo, should today be scandalized by it. He sometimes preached Jehan very long and severe sermons, which the latter intrepidly endured. After all, the young scapegrace had a good heart, as can be seen in all comedies. But the sermon over, he none the less tranquilly resumed the course of seditions and enormities. Now it was a bejon, or yellow-beak, as they called the new arrivals at the university, whom he had been mauling by way of welcome, a precious tradition which has been carefully preserved to our own day. Again he had set in movement a band of scholars, who had flung themselves upon a wine-shop in classic fashion, quasi-classico excitati, had then beaten the tavern-keeper with offensive cudgels, and joyously pillaged the tavern, even to smashing in the hogsheads of wine in the cellar. And then it was a fine report in Latin, which the sub-monitor of Torchy carried piteously to Dom Claude with his dolorous marginal comment, Rixa, 
prima causa vinum optimum potatum. Finally it was said, a thing quite horrible in a boy of sixteen, that his debauchery often extended as far as the rue de Glatigny. Claude, saddened and discouraged in his human affections, by all this, had flung himself eagerly into the arms of learning, that sister which at least does not laugh in your face, and which always pays you, though in money that is sometimes a little hollow, for the attention which you have paid to her. Hence he became more and more learned, and at the same time, as a natural consequence, more and more rigid as a priest more and more sad as a man. There are for each of us several parallelisms between our intelligence, our habits, and our character, which develop without a break, and break only in the great disturbances of life. As Claude Frollo had passed through nearly the entire circle of human learning, positive, exterior, and permissible, since his youth he was obliged, unless he came to a halt, ubi defuit orbis, to proceed further and seek other elements for the insatiable activity of his intelligence. The antique symbol of the serpent biting its tail is, above all, applicable to science. It would appear that Claude Frollo had experienced this. Many grave persons affirm that, after having exhausted the phos of human learning, he had dared to penetrate into the nephos. He had, they said, tasted in succession all the apples of the tree of knowledge, and whether from hunger or disgust, had ended by tasting the forbidden fruit. He had taken his place by turns, as the reader has seen, in the conferences of the theologians in Sorbonne, in the assemblies of the doctors of art, after the manner of Saint-Hilaire, in the disputes of the decretalists, after the manner of Saint-Martin in the congregations of physicians at the holy water-font of Notre-Dame, at Cupum Nostro Domino, all the dishes permitted and approved, which those four great kitchens called the four faculties could elaborate and serve to the understanding he had devoured, and had been satiated with them before his hunger was appeased. Then he had penetrated further, lower, beneath all that finished, material, limited knowledge. He had perhaps risked his soul, and had seated himself in the cavern at that mysterious table of the alchemists, of the astrologers, of the hermetics, of which Averroet, Guillaume de Paris, and Nicolas Flamel hold the end of the Middle Ages, and which extends in the east by the light of the seven-branched candlestick to Solomon, Pythagoras, and Zoroaster that is, at least, what was supposed, whether rightly or not. It is certain that the archdeacon often visited the cemetery of the Saint Innocence, where, it is true, his father and mother had been buried, with other victims of the plague of 1466. But that he appeared far less devout before the cross of their grave, than before the strange figures with which the tomb of Nicolas Flamel and Claude Pernell erected just beside it, was loaded. It is certain that he had frequently been seen to pass along the Rue des Lombards, and furtively enter a little house which formed the corner of the Rue des Ecrivains and the Rue Marivaux. It was the house which Nicolas Flamel had built, where he had died about 1417, and which, 
constantly deserted since that time, had already begun to fall in ruins. So greatly had the hermetics and the alchemists of all countries wasted away the walls merely by carving their names upon them. Some neighbors even affirm that they had once seen, through an air-hole, Archdeacon Claude excavating, turning over, digging up the earth in the two cellars, whose supports had been daubed with numberless couplets and hieroglyphics by Nicolas Flamel himself. It was supposed that Flamel had buried the philosopher's stone in the cellar, and the alchemists, for the space of two centuries, from Magistri to Father Pacifique, never ceased to worry the soil until the house, so cruelly ransacked and turned over, ended by falling into dust beneath their feet. Again, it is certain that the archdeacon had been seized with a singular passion for the symbolical door of Notre Dame, that page of a conjuring book written in stone, by Bishop Guillaume de Paris, who has, no doubt, been damned for having affixed so infernal a frontispiece to the sacred poem chanted by the rest of the edifice. Archdeacon Claude had the credit also of having fathomed the mystery of the Colossus of St. Christopher, and of that lofty, enigmatical statue which then stood at the entrance of the vestibule, and which the people in derision called Monsieur Legris. But what every one might have noticed was the interminable hours which he often employed, seated upon the parapet of the area in front of the church, in contemplating the sculptures of the front. Examining now the foolish virgins with their lamps reversed, now the wise virgins with their lamps upright. Again, calculating the angle of the vision of that raven which belongs to the left front and which is looking at a mysterious point inside the church, where is concealed the philosopher's stone if it be not in the cellar of Nicolas Flamel. It was, let us remark in passing, a singular fate for the church of Notre-Dame at that epoch to be so beloved, in two different degrees, and with so much devotion, by two beings so dissimilar as Claude and Quasimodo. Beloved by one, a sort of instinctive and savage half-man, for its beauty, for its stature, for the harmonies which emanated from its magnificent ensemble. Beloved by the other, a learned and passionate imagination, for its myth, for the sense which it contains, for the symbolism scattered beneath the sculptures of its front, like the first text underneath the second in a palimpsest, in a word, for the enigma which it is eternally propounding to the understanding. Furthermore, it is certain that the archdeacon had established himself in that one of the two towers which looks upon the greve just beside the frame for the bells, a very secret little cell, into which no one, not even the bishop, entered without his leave, it was said. This tiny cell had formerly been made almost at the summit of the tower, among the raven's nests, by Bishop Hugo de Besançon, who had wrought sorcery there in his day. What that cell contained no one knew, but from the strand of the terrain at night there was often seen to appear, disappear, and reappear, at brief and regular intervals, at a little dormer window opening upon the back of the tower, a certain red, intermittent, singular light which seemed to follow the panting breaths of a bellows, and to proceed from a flame rather than from a light. 
In the darkness, at that height, it produced a singular effect, and the good wife said, "'There's the archdeacon blowing. Hell is sparkling up yonder.' There were no great proofs of sorcery in that, after all, but there was still enough smoke to warrant a surmise of fire, and the archdeacon bore a tolerably formidable reputation. We ought to mention, however, that the sciences of Egypt, that necromancy and magic, even the whitest, even the most innocent, had no more envenomed enemy, no more pitiless denunciator before the gentlemen of the officialty of Notre Dame. Whether this was sincere horror, or the game played by the thief who shouts stop thief at all events, it did not prevent the archdeacon from being considered by the learned heads of the chapter as a soul who had ventured into the vestibule of hell, who was lost in the caves of the cabal, groping amid the shadows of the occult sciences. Neither were the people deceived thereby. With any one who possessed any sagacity, Quasimodo passed for the demon, Claude Frollo for the sorcerer. It was evident that the bell-ringer was to serve the archdeacon for a given time, at the end of which he would carry away the latter's soul by way of payment. Thus the archdeacon, in spite of the excessive austerity of his life, was in bad odour among all pious souls, and there was no devout nose so inexperienced that it could not smell him out to be a magician. And if, as he grew older, abysses had formed in his science, they had also formed in his heart. That, at least, is what one had grounds for believing, on scrutinizing that face upon which the soul was only seen to shine through a sombre cloud. Whence that large, bald brow, that head forever bent, that breast always heaving with sighs? What secret thought caused his mouth to smile with so much bitterness, at the same moment that his scowling brows approached each other like two bulls on the point of fighting? Why was what hair he had left already grey? What was that internal fire which sometimes broke forth in his glance, to such a degree that his eye resembled a hole pierced in the wall of a furnace? These symptoms of a violent moral preoccupation had acquired an especially high degree of intensity at the epoch when this story takes place. More than once a choir-boy had fled in terror at finding him alone in the church, so strange and dazzling was his look. More than once in the choir, at the hour of the offices, his neighbour in the stalls had heard him mingle with the plain song, ad omnem tonum, unintelligible parentheses. More than once the laundress of the terrain charged with washing the chapter had observed, not without affright, the marks of nails and clenched fingers on the surplice of Monsieur the Archdeacon of José. However, he redoubled his severity, and had never been more exemplary. By profession as well as by character he had always held himself aloof from women. He seemed to hate them more than ever. The mere rustling of a silken petticoat caused his hood to fall over his eyes. Upon this score he was so jealous of austerity and reserve that when the Dame de Beaujau, the king's daughter, came to visit the cloister of Notre Dame in the month of December, 1481, he gravely opposed her entrance, reminding the bishop of the statute of the Black Book, 
dating from the vigil of St. Bartholomew, 1334, which interdicts access to the cloister to any woman whatever, old or young, mistress or maid. Upon which the bishop had been constrained to recite to him the ordinance of Legate Odo, which accepts certain great dames, Alicoe magnates mulieris, coe sine scandalo vitari non pusant. And again the archdeacon had protested, objecting that the ordinance of the legate, which dated back to 1207, was anterior by a hundred and twenty-seven years to the black book, and consequently was abrogated in fact by it. And he had refused to appear before the princess. It was also noticed that his horror for bohemian women and gypsies had seemed to redouble for some time past. He had petitioned the bishop for an edict which expressly forbade the bohemian women to come and dance and beat their tambourines on the place of the Parvis, and for about the same length of time he had been ransacking the mouldy placards of the officialty, in order to collect the cases of sorcerers and witches condemned to fire or the rope for complicity in crimes with rams, sows, or goats. End of Book 4, Chapter 5「Unpopularity » The archdeacon and the bell-ringer, as we have already said, were but little loved by the populace, great and small, in the vicinity of the cathedral. When Claude and Quasimodo went out together, which frequently happened, and when they were seen traversing in company, the valet behind the master, the cold, narrow, and gloomy streets of the block of Notre-Dame, more than one evil word, more than one ironical quaver, more than one insulting jest greeted them on their way, unless Claude Frollo, which was rarely the case, walked with head upright and raised, showing his severe and almost august brow to the dumbfounded jeerers. Both were in their quarter, like the poets of whom Runyer speaks. All sorts of persons run after poets, as warblers fly shrieking after owls. Sometimes a mischievous child risked his skin and bones for the ineffable pleasure of driving a pin into Quasimodo's hump. Again a young girl, more bold and saucy than was fitting, brushed the priest's black robe, singing in his face the sardonic ditty, Nitch, nitch, the devil is caught. Sometimes a group of squalid old crones, squatting in a file under the shadow of the steps to a porch, scolded noisily as the archdeacon and the bell-ringer passed, and tossed them this encouraging welcome with a curse. Hum! There's a fellow whose soul is made like the other one's body! Or a band of schoolboys and street urchins, playing hopscotch, rose in a body and saluted him classically, with some cry in Latin, "'Ia, Ia, Claudius cum Claudo!' But the insult generally passed unnoticed both by the priest and the bell-ringer. Quasimodo was too deaf to hear all those gracious things, and Claude was too dreamy. End of Book Four, Chapter Six
Book Five, Chapter One of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Five, Chapter One Abbas Beati Martini. Dom Claude's fame had spread far and wide. It procured for him, at about the epoch when he refused to see Madame de Beaujol, a visit which he long remembered. It was in the evening. He had just retired, after the office, to his canon's cell in the cloister of Notre Dame. This cell, with the exception, possibly, of some glass files, relegated to a corner and filled with a decidedly equivocal powder, which strongly resembled the alchemist's powder of projection, presented nothing strange or mysterious. There were, indeed, here and there, some inscriptions on the walls, but they were pure sentences of learning and piety, extracted from good authors. The archdeacon had just seated himself, by the light of a three-jetted copper lamp, before a vast coffer crammed with manuscripts. He had rested his elbow upon the open volume of Honorius de Autun. De predestinatione et libero arbitrio and he was turning over, in deep meditation, the leaves of a printed folio which he had just brought, the sole product of the press which his cell contained. In the midst of his reverie there came a knock at his door. "'Who's there?' cried the learned man, in the gracious tone of a famished dog, disturbed over his bone. A voice without replied, "'Your friend, Jacques Quatier.' He went to open the door. It was, in fact, the king's physician, a person about fifty years of age, whose harsh physiognomy was modified only by a crafty eye. Another man accompanied him. Both wore long, slate-colored robes, furred with miniver, girded and closed, with caps of the same stuff and hue. Their hands were concealed by their sleeves, their feet by their robes, their eyes by their caps. "'God help me, messieurs,' said the archdeacon, showing them in. "'I was not expecting distinguished visitors at such an hour.' And while speaking in this courteous fashion he cast an uneasy and scrutinizing glance from the physician to his companion. "'Tis never too late to come and pay a visit to so considerable a learned man as Dom Claude Frollo de Tirechapet,' replied Dr. Quatier whose Franche Comte accent made all his phrases drag along with the majesty of a train-robe. There then ensued between the physician and the archdeacon one of those congratulatory prologues which, in accordance with custom, at that epoch preceded all conversations between learned men, and which did not prevent them from detesting each other in the most cordial manner in the world. However, it is the same nowadays. Every wise man's mouth complimenting another wise man is a vase of honeyed gall. Claude Frollo's felicitations to Jacques Quatier bore reference principally to the temporal advantages which the worthy physician had found means to extract, in the course of his much envied career, from each malady of the king, an operation of alchemy much better and more certain than the pursuit of the philosopher's stone. In truth, Monsieur le Docteur Quatier, I felt great joy on learning of the bishopric given your nephew, my reverend Seigneur Pierre Versailles. Is he not Bishop of Amiens? 
Yes, Monsieur Archdeacon, it is a grace and mercy of God. Do you know that you made a great figure on Christmas Day at the beat of your company of the Chamber of Accounts, Monsieur President? Vice-President, Dom Claude, alas, nothing more. How is your superb house in the Rue Saint-André de Arc coming on? Tis a Louvre. I love greatly the apricot-tree which is carved on the door, with this play of words, a labre cotier, sheltered from reefs. Alas, Master Claude, all that masonry costeth me dear. In proportion as the house is erected, I am ruined. Ho! Have you not your revenues from the jail, and the bailiwick of the palais, and the rents of all the houses, sheds, stalls, and booths of the enclosure? Tis a fine breast to suck. My Castellania Poissy has brought me in nothing this year. But your tolls of Triel, of St. James, of St. germain Laye are always good. Six score livres, and not even Parisian livres at that. You have your office of counsellor to the king, that is fixed. Yes, brother Claude, but that accursed seigneurie Poligny, which people make so much noise about, is worth not sixty gold crowns, year out and year in. In the compliments which Dom Claude addressed to Jacques Quartier, there was that sardonical, biting, and covertly mocking accent and the sad, cruel smile of a superior and unhappy man who toys for a moment by way of distraction with the dense prosperity of a vulgar man. The other did not perceive it. "'Upon my soul,' said Claude at length, pressing his hand, "'I am glad to see you in such good health.' "'Thanks, Master Claude.' "'By the way,' exclaimed Dom Claude, how is your royal patient? He payeth not sufficiently his physician, replied the doctor, casting a side-glance at his companion. Think you so, gossip Quartier, said the latter. These words, uttered in a tone of surprise and reproach, drew upon this unknown personage the attention of the archdeacon, which, to tell the truth, had not been diverted from him a single moment since the stranger had set foot across the threshold of his cell. It had even required all the thousand reasons which he had for handling tenderly Dr. Jacques Quartier, the all-powerful physician of King Louis the Eleventh, to induce him to receive the latter thus accompanied. Hence there was nothing very cordial in his manner when Jacques Quartier said to him, "'By the way, Claude, I bring you a colleague who has desired to see you on account of your reputation." "'Monsieur belongs to science?' asked the archdeacon, fixing his piercing eye upon Quartier's companion. He found beneath the brows of the stranger a glance no less piercing or less distrustful than his own. He was, so far as the feeble light of the lamp permitted one to judge, an old man about sixty years of age, and of medium stature appeared somewhat sickly and broken in health. His profile, although of a very ordinary outline, had something powerful and severe about it. His eyes sparkled beneath a very deep, superciliary arch, like a light in the depths of a cave. 
and beneath his cap, which was well drawn down and fell upon his nose, one recognized the broad expanse of a brow of genius. He took it upon himself to reply to the archdeacon's question. "'Reverend Master,' he said in a grave tone, your renown has reached my ears, and I wish to consult you. I am but a poor provincial gentleman, who removeth his shoes before entering the dwellings of the learned. You must know my name. I am called Gossip Torengo." "'Strange name for a gentleman,' said the archdeacon to himself. Nevertheless, he had a feeling that he was in the presence of a strong and earnest character. The instinct of his own lofty intellect made him recognize an intellect no less lofty under Gossip Torengo's furred cap, and as he gazed at the solemn face, the ironical smile which Jacques Quartier's presence called forth on his gloomy face, gradually disappeared as twilight fades on the horizon of night. Stern and silent, he had resumed his seat in his great armchair. His elbow rested as usual on the table, and his brow on his hand. After a few moments of reflection he motioned his visitors to be seated, and, turning to Gossip Turingo, he said, "'You come to consult me, master, and upon what science?' "'Your reverence,' replied Turingo, "'I am ill, very ill. You are said to be a great Esculapius and I am come to ask your advice in medicine." "'Medicine,' said the archdeacon, tossing his head. He seemed to meditate for a moment, and then resumed. "'Gossip Turingo, since that is your name, turn your head, and you will find my reply already written on the wall.' Gossip Turingo obeyed, and read this inscription engraved above his head. "'Medicine is the daughter of dreams, Jamblique. Meanwhile, Dr. Jacques Quartier had heard his companion's question with a displeasure which Dom Claude's response had but redoubled. He bent down to the ear of Gossip Toringo and said to him, softly enough not to be heard by the archdeacon, "'I warned you that he was mad. You insisted upon seeing him.' "'Tis very possible that he is right, madman as he is, Dr. Jacques replied his comrade in the same low tone and with a bitter smile. "'As you please,' replied Quatier dryly. Then addressing the archdeacon, "'You are clever at your trade, Dom Claude, and you are no more at a loss over Hippocrates than a monkey is over a nut. Medicine, a dream? I suspect that the pharmacopolists and the master physicians would insist upon stoning you if they were here.' So you deny the influence of filters upon the blood and unguents on the skin? You deny that eternal pharmacy of flowers and metals, which is called the world, made expressly for that eternal invalid called man?" "'I deny,' said Dom Claude coldly, "'neither pharmacy nor the invalid. I reject the physician.' "'Then it is not true,' resumed Quatier hotly that gout is an internal eruption, that a wound caused by artillery is to be cured by the application of a young mouse roasted, that young blood, properly injected, restores youth to aged veins. It is not true that two and two make four, 
and that improstathonos follows opestathonos. The archdeacon replied without perturbation. There are certain things of which I think in a certain fashion. Quatier became crimson with anger. There, there, my good Quatier, let us not get angry, said Gossip Toringot. Monsieur the Archdeacon is our friend. Quatier calmed down, muttering in a low tone, After all, he's mad. Pasque du, Master Claude, resumed Gossip Toringot, after a silence, you embarrass me greatly. I had two things to consult you upon, one touching my health, and the other touching my star." "'Monsieur,' returned the archdeacon, "'if that be your motive, you would have done as well not to put yourself out of breath climbing my staircase. I do not believe in medicine. I do not believe in astrology.' "'Indeed,' said the man with surprise. Quatier gave a forced laugh. "'You see that he is mad.' he said in a low tone to Gossip Toringot. He does not believe in astrology. The idea of imagining, pursued Dom Claude, that every ray of a star is a thread which is fastened to the head of a man. And what, then, do you believe in? exclaimed Gossip Toringot. The archdeacon hesitated for a moment, then he allowed a gloomy smile to escape which seemed to give the lie to his response. Credo in Dium. Dominum nostrum, added Gossip Toringo, making the sign of the cross. Amen, said Quatier. Reverend Master, resumed Toringo, I am charmed in soul to see you in such a religious frame of mind. But have you reached the point, great savant as you are, of no longer believing in science? No said the archdeacon, grasping the arm of Gossip Toringot, and a ray of enthusiasm lighted up his gloomy eyes. No, I do not reject science. I have not crawled so long, flat on my belly, with my nails in the earth, through the innumerable ramifications of its caverns, without perceiving far in front of me, at the end of the obscure gallery, a light, a flame, a something, the reflection, no doubt, of the dazzling central laboratory where the patient and the wise have found out God. And in short, interrupted Turingot, what do you hold to be true and certain? Alchemy! Quatier exclaimed, Pardieu, Dame Claude, alchemy has its use, no doubt, but why blaspheme medicine and astrology? Naught is your science of man. Naught is your science of the stars," said the archdeacon commandingly. "'That's driving Epidorus and Chaldea very fast,' replied the physician with a grin. "'Listen, Monsieur Jacques, this is said in good faith. I am not the king's physician, and His Majesty has not given me the Garden of Daedalus in which to observe the constellations. Don't get angry, but listen to me. What truth have you deduced, I will not say from medicine, which is too foolish a thing, but from astrology? Cite to me the virtues of the vertical Bostrophedon, the treasures of the number Zeruf and those of the number Zephyrod. 
"'Will you deny,' said Quatier, "'the sympathetic force of the collar-bone, and the cabalistics which are derived from it?' "'An error, Monsieur Jacques. None of your formulas end in reality. Alchemy, on the other hand, has its discoveries. Will you contest results like this?' Ice confined beneath the earth for a thousand years is transformed into rock crystals. Lead is the ancestor of all metals. For gold is not a metal, gold is light. Lead requires only four periods of two hundred years each to pass in succession from the state of lead to the state of red arsenic, from red arsenic to tin, from tin to silver. Are not these facts? But to believe in the collar-bone, and in the full line, and in the stars, is as ridiculous as to believe with the inhabitants of Grand Cathay that the golden oriole turns into a mole, and that grains of wheat turn into fish of the carp species. "'I have studied hermetic science,' exclaimed Quatier, "'and I affirm—' The fiery archdeacon did not allow him to finish and I have studied medicine, astrology, and hermetics. Here alone is the truth." As he spoke thus, he took from the top of the coffer a phial filled with the powder which we have mentioned above. Here alone is light. Hippocrates is a dream. Urania is a dream. Hermes a thought. Gold is the sun. To make gold is to be God. Herein lies the one and only science. I have sounded the depths of medicine and astrology, I tell you. Naught, nothingness. The human body, shadows. The planets, shadows." And he fell back in his armchair in a commanding and inspired attitude. Gossip Turingo watched him in silence. Quatier tried to grin, shrugged his shoulders imperceptibly, and repeated in a low voice, a madman. And, said Toringo suddenly, the wondrous result, have you attained it? Have you made gold? If I had made it, replied the archdeacon, articulating his words slowly, like a man who is reflecting, the King of France would be named Claude and not Louis. The stranger frowned. What am I saying? resumed Dom Claude, with a smile of disdain. What would the throne of France be to me when I could rebuild the empire of the Orient? Very good, said the stranger. Oh, the poor fool, murmured Quatier. The archdeacon went on, appearing to reply now only to his thoughts. But no, I am still crawling. I am scratching my face and knees against the pebbles of the subterranean pathway. I catch a glimpse, I do not contemplate, I do not read, I spell out." "'And when you know how to read,' demanded the stranger, "'will you make gold?' "'Who doubts it?' said the archdeacon. "'In that case, Our Lady knows that I am greatly in need of money and I should much desire to read in your books. Tell me, reverend master, is your science inimical or displeasing to Our Lady?" "'Whose archdeacon I am?' 
Dom Claude contented himself with replying with tranquil hauteur. "'That is true, my master. Well, will it please you to initiate me? Let me spell with you.' Claude assumed the majestic and pontifical attitude of a Samuel. "'Old man, it requires longer years than remain to you to undertake this voyage across mysterious things. Your head is very gray. One comes forth from the cavern only with white hair, but only those with dark hair enter it. Science alone knows well how to hollow, wither, and dry up human faces. She needs not to have old age bring her faces already furrowed. Nevertheless, if the desire possesses you of putting yourself under discipline at your age, and of deciphering the formidable alphabet of the sages, come to me. Tis well, I will make the effort. I will not tell you, poor old man, to go and visit the sepulchral chambers of the pyramids, of which ancient Herodotus speaks, nor the brick tower of Babylon, nor the immense white marble sanctuary of the Indian temple of Eklinga. I, no more than yourself, have seen the Chaldean masonry works constructed according to the sacred form of the Sikra nor the temple of Solomon, which is destroyed, nor the stone doors of the sepulchre of the kings of Israel, which are broken. We will content ourselves with the fragments of the book of Hermes which we have here. I will explain to you the statue of St. Christopher, the symbol of the sower, and that of the two angels which are on the front of the Sainte Chapelle, and one of which holds in his hands a vase, the other a cloud. Here Jacques Quatier, who had been unhorsed by the archdeacon's impetuous replies, regained his saddle, and interrupted him with the triumphant tone of one learned man correcting another. Eras amici Claudi! The symbol is not the number. You take Orpheus for Hermes!' "'Tis you who are in error,' replied the archdeacon gravely. "'Daedalus is the base, Orpheus is the wall.' Hermes is the edifice, that is all. You shall come when you will, he continued, turning to Torengo. I will show you the little parcels of gold which remained at the bottom of Nicolas Flamel's alembic, and you shall compare them with the gold of Guillaume de Paris. I will teach you the secret virtues of the Greek word peristyra. But first of all, I will make you read, one after the other, the marble letters of the alphabet, the granite pages of the book. We shall go to the portal of Bishop Guillaume, and of St. Jean le Ronde at the Sainte Chapelle, then to the house of Nicolas Flamel, Rue Manvaux, to his tomb, which is at the Sainte Innocence, to his two hospitals, Rue de Montmorency. I will make you read the hieroglyphics which cover the four great iron cramps on the portal of the Hospital Saint Gervais and of the Rue de la Ferronnerie. We will spell out in company, also, the façade of Saint-Combe, of saint Geneviève de Ardant, of Saint-Martin, of Saint-Jacques de la Boucherie." For a long time, Gossip Toringo, intelligent as was his glance, had appeared not to understand Dom Claude. He interrupted. Pasque de What are your books, then?' "'Here is one of them.' said the archdeacon. 
and opening the window of his cell he pointed out with his finger the immense church of Notre Dame, which, outlining against the starry sky the black silhouette of its two towers, its stone flanks, its monstrous haunches, seemed an enormous two-headed sphinx seated in the middle of the city. The archdeacon gazed at the gigantic edifice for some time in silence, then, extending his right hand, with a sigh towards the printed book which lay open on the table, and his left towards Notre Dame, and turning a sad glance from the book to the church, "'Alas,' he said, "'this will kill that.'" Quatier, who had eagerly approached the book, could not repress an exclamation. Eh, but now what is there so formidable in this? Glossa in Epistolas dit Pauli, Nuremburgo Antonius Coburger, fourteen seventy four. This is not new. Tis a book of Pierre Lombard, the master of sentences. Is it because it is printed? You have said it, replied Claude, who seemed absorbed in a profound meditation and stood, resting, his forefinger bent backward on the folio which had come from the famous press of Nuremberg. Then he added these mysterious words, "'Alas, alas, small things come at the end of great things. A tooth triumphs over a mass. The Nile-rat kills the crocodile, the swordfish kills the whale, the book will kill the edifice.' The curfew of the cloister sounded at the moment when Master Jacques was repeating to his companion in low tones his eternal refrain, "'He is mad!' to which his companion this time replied, "'I believe that he is.' It was the hour when no stranger could remain in the cloister. The two visitors withdrew. "'Master,' said Gossip Toringo, as he took leave of the archdeacon, I love wise men and great minds, and I hold you in singular esteem. Come to-morrow to the Palace de Tournelles, and inquire for the Abbe de Saint-Martin of Tours." The archdeacon returned to his chamber dumbfounded, comprehending at last who Gossip Toringo was, and recalling that passage of the register of Saint-Martin of Tours. Abbas Beati Martini Silicet rex Franciae, est canonicus de constitutine et habet parvem probendum, quam habet sanctus venantius, et debet sedere in sede thesaurari. It is asserted that after that epoch the archdeacon had frequent conferences with Louis the Eleventh when His Majesty came to Paris, and that Dom Claude's influence quite overshadowed that of Olivier la Dame and Jacques Quatier who, as was his habit, rudely took the king to task on that account. End of Book 5, Chapter 1our lady readers will pardon us if we pause for a moment to seek what could have been the thought concealed beneath those enigmatic words of the archdeacon, "'This will kill that. The book will kill the edifice.' 
To our mind, this thought had two faces. In the first place, it was a priestly thought. It was the affright of the priest in the presence of a new agent, the printing press. It was the terror and dazzled amazement of the men of the sanctuary, in the presence of the luminous press of Gutenberg. It was the pulpit and the manuscript taking the alarm at the printed word, something similar to the stupor of a sparrow which should behold the angel legion unfold his six million wings. It was the cry of the prophet who already hears emancipated humanity roaring and swarming, who beholds in the future intelligence sapping faith, opinion dethroning belief, the world shaking off Rome. It was the prognostication of the philosopher who sees human thought, volatized by the press, evaporating from the theocratic recipient. It was the terror of the soldier who examines the brazen battering-ram and says, The tower will crumble. It signified that one power was about to succeed another power. It meant, The press will kill the church. But underlying this thought, the first and most simple one, no doubt, there was, in our opinion, another newer one, a corollary of the first, less easy to perceive and more easy to contest, a view as philosophical and belonging no longer to the priest alone, but to the savant and the artist. It was a presentiment that human thought, in changing its form, was about to change its mode of expression that the dominant idea of each generation would no longer be written with the same matter and in the same manner, that the book of stone, so solid and so durable, was about to make way for the book of paper, more solid and still more durable. In this connection the archdeacon's vague formula had a second sense. It meant, printing will kill architecture. In fact, from the origin of things down to the fifteenth century of the Christian era inclusive, architecture is the great book of humanity, the principal expression of man in his different stages of development, either as a force or as an intelligence. When the memory of the first races felt itself overloaded, when the mass of reminiscences of the human race became so heavy and so confused, that speech, naked and flying, ran the risk of losing them on the way, men transcribed them on the soil in a manner which was at once the most visible, most durable, and most natural. They sealed each tradition beneath a monument. The first monuments were simple masses of rock, which the iron had not touched, as Moses says. Architecture began like all writing. It was first an alphabet. Men planted a stone upright, it was a letter, and each letter was a hieroglyph, and upon each hieroglyph rested a group of ideas, like the capital on the column. This is what the earliest races did everywhere, at the same moment, on the surface of the entire world. We find the standing stones of the Celts in Asian Siberia, in the Pampas of America. Later on they made words they placed stone upon stone, they coupled those syllables of granite and attempted some combinations. The Celtic dolmen and cromlech, the Etruscan tumulus, the Hebrew galgal are words. Some, especially the tumulus, are proper names, 
Sometimes even, when men had a great deal of stone, and a vast plain, they wrote a phrase. The immense pile of Karnak is a complete sentence. At last they made books. Traditions had brought forth symbols, beneath which they disappeared like the trunk of a tree beneath its foliage. All these symbols in which humanity placed faith continued to grow, to multiply, to intersect, to become more and more complicated. The first monuments no longer sufficed to contain them. They were overflowing in every part. These monuments hardly expressed now the primitive tradition, simple like themselves, naked and prone upon the earth. The symbol felt the need of expansion in the edifice. Then architecture was developed in proportion with human thought. It became a giant, with a thousand heads and a thousand arms, and fixed all this floating symbolism in an eternal, visible, palpable form. While Daedalus, who is force, measured, while Orpheus, who is intelligence, sang, the pillar which is a letter, the arcade which is a syllable, the pyramid which is a word, all set in movement at once by a law of geometry and by a law of poetry, grouped themselves, combined, amalgamated, descended, ascended, placed themselves side by side on the soil, ranged themselves in stories in the sky, until they had written under the dictation of the general idea of an epoch those marvelous books which were also marvelous edifices. The Pagoda of Eklinga, the Ramsion of Egypt, the Temple of Solomon. The generating idea, the word, was not only at the foundation of all these edifices, but also in the form. The Temple of Solomon, for example, was not alone the binding of the holy book, it was the holy book itself. On each one of its concentric walls the priests could read the word translated and manifested to the eye and thus they followed its transformations from sanctuary to sanctuary, until they seized it in its last tabernacle under its most concrete form, which still belonged to architecture, the arch. Thus the word was enclosed in an edifice, but its image was upon its envelope, like the human form on the coffin of a mummy. And not only the form of edifices, but the site selected for them, revealed the thought which they represented, according as the symbol to be expressed was graceful or grave. Greece crowned her mountains with a temple harmonious to the eye. India disemboweled hers to chisel therein those monstrous subterranean pagodas, borne up by gigantic rows of granite elephants. Thus, during the first six thousand years of the world, from the most immemorial pagoda of Hindustan to the Cathedral of Cologne, architecture was the great handwriting of the human race. And this is so true, that not only every religious symbol, but every human thought has its page and its monument in that immense book. All civilization begins in theocracy and ends in democracy. This law of liberty following unity is written in architecture. For let us insist upon this point. Masonry must not be thought to be powerful only in erecting the temple and in expressing the myth and sacerdotal symbolism. In inscribing in hieroglyphs upon its pages of stone the mysterious tables of the law. If it were thus, as there comes in all human society a moment when the sacred symbol is worn out, 
and becomes obliterated under freedom of thought, when man escapes from the priest, when the excrescence of philosophies and systems devour the face of religion, architecture could not reproduce this new state of human thought. Its leaves, so crowded on the face, would be empty on the back. Its work would be mutilated, its book would be incomplete. But no. Let us take as an example the Middle Ages, where we see more clearly because it is nearer to us. During its first period, while theocracy is organizing Europe, while the Vatican is rallying and reclassing about itself the elements of a Rome made from the Rome which lies in ruins around the capital, while Christianity is seeking all the stages of society amid the rubbish of anterior civilization and rebuilding with its ruins a new hierarchic universe, the keystone to whose vault is the priest. One first hears a dull echo from that chaos, and then, little by little, one sees, arising from beneath the breath of Christianity, from beneath the hand of the barbarians, from the fragments of the dead Greek and Roman architectures, that mysterious Romanesque architecture, sister of the theocratic masonry of Egypt and of India, inalterable emblem of pure Catholicism, unchangeable hieroglyph of the papal unity. All the thought of that day is written, in fact, in this somber, Romanesque style. One feels everywhere in it authority, unity, the impenetrable, the absolute Gregory the Seventh. Always the priest, never the man. Everywhere cast, never the people. But the Crusades arrive. They are a great popular movement and every great popular movement, whatever may be its cause and object, always sets free the spirit of liberty from its final precipitate. New things spring into life every day. Here opens the stormy period of the Jacqueries, Prageries, and Leagues. Authority wavers, unity is divided. Feudalism demands to share with theocracy, while awaiting the inevitable arrival of the people, who will assume the part of the lion Quia nominor leo, seniory pierces through sacerdotalism, the commonality through seniory. The face of Europe is changed. Well, the face of architecture is changed also. Like civilization, it has turned a page, and the new spirit of the time finds her ready to write at its dictation. It returns from the Crusades with the pointed arch, like the nations with liberty. Then, while Rome is undergoing gradual dismemberment, Romanesque architecture dies. The hieroglyph deserts the cathedral, and betakes itself to blazoning the dungeon-keep, in order to lend prestige to feudalism. The cathedral itself, that edifice formerly so dogmatic, invaded henceforth by the bourgeoisie, by the community, by liberty, escapes the priest and falls into the power of the artist. The artist builds it after his own fashion. Farewell to mystery, myth, law. Fancy and caprice, welcome. Provided the priest has his basilica and his altar, he has nothing to say. The four walls belong to the artist. The architectural book belongs no longer to the priest, to religion, to Rome. It is the property of poetry, of imagination, of the people. Hence the rapid and innumerable transformations of that architecture which owns but three centuries, 
so striking after the stagnant immobility of the Romanesque architecture which owns six or seven. Nevertheless, art marches on with giant strides. Popular genius amid originality accomplished the task which the bishops formerly fulfilled. Each race writes its line upon the book as it passes. It erases the ancient Romanesque hieroglyphs on the frontispieces of cathedrals, and at the most one only sees dogma cropping out here and there, beneath the new symbol which it has deposited. The popular drapery hardly permits the religious skeleton to be suspected. One cannot even form an idea of the liberties which the architects then take, even toward the church. There are capitals knitted of nuns and monks, shamelessly coupled, as on the hall of chimney-pieces in the Palais de Justice in Paris. There is Noah's adventure carved to the last detail, as under the great portal of Bourges. There is a bacchanalian monk, with ass's ears and glass in hand, laughing in the face of a whole community, as on the lavatory of the Abbey of Beaucherville. There exists at that epoch, for thought written in stone, a privilege exactly comparable to our present liberty of the press. It is the liberty of architecture. This liberty goes very far. Sometimes a portal, a façade, an entire church, presents a symbolical sense absolutely foreign to worship, or even hostile to the church. In the thirteenth century, Guillaume de Paris and Nicolas Flamel in the fifteenth wrote such seditious pages. Saint-Jacques de la Boucherie was a whole church of the opposition. Thought was then free only in this manner, hence it never wrote itself out completely except on the books called edifices. Thought, under the form of edifice, could have beheld itself burned in the public square by the hands of the executioner, in its manuscript form, if it had been sufficiently imprudent to risk itself thus. Thought, as the door of a church, would have been a spectator of the punishment of thought as a book. Having thus only this resource, masonry, in order to make its way to the light, flung itself upon it from all quarters. Hence the immense quantity of cathedrals which have covered Europe, a number so prodigious that one can hardly believe it even after having verified it. All the material forces, all the intellectual forces of society converge towards the same point, architecture. In this manner, under the pretext of building churches to God, art was developed in its magnificent proportions. Then whoever was born a poet became an architect. Genius, scattered in the masses, repressed in every quarter under feudalism as under a testudo of brazen bucklers, finding no issue except in the direction of architecture, gushed forth through that art, and its Iliads assumed the form of cathedrals. All other arts obeyed and placed themselves under the discipline of architecture. They were the workmen of the great work. The architect, the poet, the master, summed up in his person the sculpture which carved his façades, painting which illuminated his windows, music which set his bells to pealing, and breathed into his organs. There was nothing down to poor poetry, properly speaking, that which persisted in vegetating in manuscripts, which was not forced, in order to make something of itself, 
to come and frame itself in the edifice in the shape of a hymn or of prose. The same part, after all, which the tragedies of Aeschylus had played in the sacerdotal festivals of Greece, Genesis in the Temple of Solomon. Thus, down to the time of Gutenberg, architecture is the principal writing, the universal writing. In that granite book, begun by the Orient, continued by Greek and Roman antiquity, the Middle Ages wrote the last page. Moreover, this phenomenon of an architecture of the people following an architecture of caste, which we have just been observing in the Middle Ages, is reproduced with every analogous movement in the human intelligence at the other great epochs of history. Thus, in order to enunciate here only summarily, a law which it would require volumes to develop, in the High Orient the cradle of primitive times, after Hindu architecture came Phoenician architecture, that opulent mother of Arabian architecture. In antiquity, after Egyptian architecture, of which Etruscan style and Cyclopean monuments are but one variety, came Greek architecture, of which the Roman style is only a continuation, surcharged with the Carthaginian dome. In modern times, after Romanesque architecture, came Gothic architecture and, by separating the three series into their component parts, we shall find in the three eldest sisters Hindu architecture, Egyptian architecture, Romanesque architecture, the same symbol. That is to say, theocracy, caste, unity, dogma, myth, God. And for the three younger sisters, Phoenician architecture, Greek architecture, Gothic architecture, whatever, nevertheless, may be the diversity of form inherent in their nature, the same signification also, that is to say, liberty, the people, man. In the Hindu, Egyptian, or Romanesque architecture, one feels the priest, nothing but the priest, whether he calls himself Brahmin, Magian, or Pope. It is not the same in the architectures of the people. They are richer and less sacred. In the Phoenician one feels the merchant, in the Greek the republican, in the Gothic the citizen. The general characteristics of all theocratic architecture are immutability, horror of progress, the preservation of traditional lines, the consecration of the primitive types, the constant bending of all the forms of men and of nature to the incomprehensible caprices of the symbol. These are dark books which the initiated alone understand how to decipher. Moreover, every form, every deformity even, has there a sense which renders it inviolable. Do not ask of Hindu, Egyptian, Romanesque masonry to reform their design, or to improve their statuary. Every attempt at perfecting is an impiety to them. In these architectures it seems as though the rigidity of the dogma had spread over the stone like a sort of second petrification. The general characteristics of popular masonry, on the contrary, are progress, originality, opulence, perpetual movement. They are already sufficiently detached from religion to think of their beauty, to take care of it, to correct without relaxation their perure of statues or arabesques. They are of the age. They have something human, which they mingle incessantly with the divine symbol under which they still produce. 
hence edifices comprehensible to every soul, to every intelligence, to every imagination, symbolical still, but as easy to understand as nature. Between theocratic architecture and this there is the difference that lies between a sacred language and a vulgar language, between hieroglyphics and art, between Solomon and Phidias. If the reader will sum up what we have hitherto briefly, very briefly indicated, neglecting a thousand proofs and also a thousand objections of detail, he will be led to this, that architecture was, down to the fifteenth century, the chief register of humanity, that in that interval not a thought which is in any degree complicated made its appearance in the world, which has not been worked into an edifice that every popular idea and every religious law has had its monumental records, that the human race has, in short, had no important thought which it has not written in stone. And why? Because every thought, either philosophical or religious, is interested in perpetuating itself, because the idea which has moved one generation wishes to move others also, and leave a trace. Now, what a precarious immortality is that of the manuscript! How much more solid, durable, unyielding is a book of stone! In order to destroy the written word, a torch and a Turk are sufficient. To demolish the constructed word, a social revolution, a terrestrial revolution are required. The barbarians passed over the Colosseum. The deluge, perhaps, passed over the pyramids. In the fifteenth century, everything changes. Human thought discovers a mode of perpetuating itself, not only more durable and more resisting than architecture, but still more simple and easy. Architecture is dethroned. Gutenberg's letters of lead are about to supersede Orpheus's letters of stone. The invention of printing is the greatest event in history. It is the mother of revolution. It is the mode of expression of humanity which is totally renewed. It is human thought stripping off one form and donning another. It is the complete and definitive change of skin of that symbolical serpent which, since the days of Adam, has represented intelligence. In its printed form, thought is more imperishable than ever. It is volatile, irresistible, indestructible. It is mingled with the air. In the days of architecture it made a mountain of itself, and took powerful possession of a century and a place. Now it converts itself into a flock of birds, scatters itself to the four winds, and occupies all points of air and space at once. We repeat, who does not perceive that in this form it is far more indelible? It was solid, it has become alive. It passes from duration in time to immortality. One can demolish a mass. How can one extirpate ubiquity? If a flood comes, the mountains will have long disappeared beneath the waves, while the birds will still be flying about. And if a single ark floats on the surface of the cataclysm, they will light upon it, will float with it, will be present with it at the ebbing of the waters and the new world which emerges from this chaos will behold, on its awakening, the thought of the world which has been submerged, soaring above it, winged and living. 
and when one observes that this mode of expression is not only the most conservative, but also the most simple, the most convenient, the most practicable for all. When one reflects that it does not drag after it bulky baggage, and does not set in motion a heavy apparatus. When one compares thought forced, in order to transform itself into an edifice, to put in motion four or five other arts and tons of gold, a whole mountain of stones, a whole forest of timber-work, a whole nation of workmen. When one compares it to the thought which becomes a book, and for which a little paper, a little ink, and a pen suffice, how can one be surprised that human intelligence should have quitted architecture for printing? Cut the primitive bed of a river abruptly, with a canal hollowed out below its level, and the river will desert its bed. Behold how, beginning with the discovery of printing, architecture withers away little by little, becomes lifeless and bare. How one feels the water sinking, the sap departing, the thought of the times and of the people withdrawing from it. The chill is almost imperceptible in the fifteenth century. The press is, as yet, too weak, and at the most draws from powerful architecture a superabundance of life. But practically beginning in the sixteenth century, the malady of architecture is visible. It is no longer the expression of society. It becomes classic art in a miserable manner. From being Gallic, European, indigenous, it becomes Greek and Roman. From being true and modern, it becomes pseudo-classic. It is this decadence which is called the Renaissance. A magnificent decadence, however, for the ancient Gothic genius, that sun which sets behind the gigantic press of Mayence, still penetrates for a while longer with its rays that whole hybrid pile of Latin arcades and Corinthian columns. It is that setting sun which we mistake for the dawn. Nevertheless, from the moment when architecture is no longer anything but an art like any other, as soon as it is no longer the total art, the sovereign art, the tyrant art, it has no longer the power to retain the other arts. So they emancipate themselves, break the yoke of the architect, and take themselves off, each one in its own direction. Each one of them gains by this divorce. Isolation aggrandizes everything. Sculpture becomes statuary. The image trade becomes painting. The canon becomes music. One would pronounce it an empire dismembered at the death of its Alexander, and whose provinces become kingdoms. Hence Raphael, Michelangelo, Jeanne Gaujon, Palestrina, those splendors of the dazzling sixteenth century. Thought emancipates itself in all directions at the same time as the arts. The arch-heretics of the Middle Ages had already made large incisions into Catholicism. The sixteenth century breaks religious unity. Before the invention of printing, reform would have been merely a schism. Printing converted it into a revolution. Take away the press, heresy is enervated. Whether it be providence or fate, Gutenberg is the precursor of Luther. Nevertheless, when the sun of the Middle Ages is completely set, when the Gothic genius is forever extinct upon the horizon, architecture grows dim, loses its color, 
becomes more and more effaced. The printed book, the gnawing worm of the edifice, sucks and devours it. It becomes bare, denuded of its foliage, and grows visibly emaciated. It is petty, it is poor, it is nothing. It no longer expresses anything, not even the memory of the art of another time. Reduced to itself, abandoned by the other arts, because human thought is abandoning it, it summons bunglers in place of artists. Glass replaces the painted windows. The stone-cutter succeeds the sculptor. Farewell all sap, all originality, all life, all intelligence. It drags along, a lamentable workshop mendicant, from copy to copy. Michelangelo, who, no doubt, felt even in the sixteenth century that it was dying, had a last idea, an idea of despair. That titan of art piled the Pantheon on the Parthenon, and made St. Peter's at Rome. A great work, which deserved to remain unique, the last originality of architecture, the signature of a giant artist at the bottom of the colossal register of stone which was closed forever. With Michelangelo dead, what does this miserable architecture which survived itself in the state of a spectre do? It takes St. Peter in Rome, copies it, and parodies it. It is a mania, it is a pity. Each century has its St. Peter's of Rome. In the seventeenth century, the Val de Grasse. In the eighteenth, saint jean -Viave. Each country has its St. Peter's of Rome. London has one, Petersburg has another, Paris has two or three. The insignificant testament, the last dotage of a decrepit grand art, falling back into infancy before it dies. If, in place of the characteristic monuments which we have just described, we examine the general aspect of art from the sixteenth to the eighteenth century, we notice the same phenomena of decay and thysis. Beginning with Francois II, the architectural form of the edifice effaces itself more and more, and allows the geometrical form, like the bony structure of an emaciated invalid to become prominent. The fine lines of art give way to the cold and inexorable lines of geometry. An edifice is no longer an edifice. It is a polyhedron. Meanwhile, architecture is tormented in her struggles to conceal this nudity. Look at the Greek pediment inscribed upon the Roman pediment, and vice versa. It is still the Pantheon on the Parthenon, St. Peter's of Rome. Here are the brick houses of Henri IV, with their stone corners, the Place Royale, the Place Dauphin. Here are the churches of Louis XIII, heavy, squat, thick-set, crowded together, loaded with a dome like a hump. Here is the Mazarin architecture, that wretched Italian pasticcio of the Four Nations. Here are the palaces of Louis XIV, long barracks for courtiers, stiff, cold, tiresome. Here, finally, is Louis XV, with chicory leaves and vermicelli, and all the warts and all the fungi, which disfigure that decrepit, toothless, and coquettish old architecture. From Francois II to Louis XV, the evil has increased in geometrical progression. Art has no longer anything but skin upon its bones, 
it is miserably perishing. Meanwhile, what becomes of printing? All the life which is leaving architecture comes to it. In proportion, as architecture ebbs, printing swells and grows. That capital of forces which human thought had been expending in edifices, it henceforth expends in books. Thus, from the sixteenth century onward, the press, raised to the level of decaying architecture, contends with it and kills it. In the seventeenth century it is already sufficiently the sovereign, sufficiently triumphant, sufficiently established in its victory, to give to the world the feast of a great literary century. In the eighteenth, having reposed for a long time at the court of Louis the Fourteenth, it seizes again the old sword of Luther, puts it into the hand of Voltaire, and rushes impetuously to the attack of that ancient Europe whose architectural expression it has already killed. At the moment when the eighteenth century comes to an end, it has destroyed everything. In the nineteenth, it begins to reconstruct. Now, we ask, which of the three arts has really represented human thought for the last three centuries? Which translates it? Which expresses not only its literary and scholastic vagaries, but its vast, profound, universal movement? which constantly superposes itself, without a break, without a gap, upon the human race, which walks a monster with a thousand legs, architecture or printing. It is printing. Let the reader make no mistake. Architecture is dead, irretrievably slain by the printed book, slain because it endures for a shorter time, slain because it costs more. Every cathedral represents millions. Let the reader now imagine what an investment of funds it would require to rewrite the architectural book, to cause thousands of edifices to swarm once more upon the soil, to return to those epochs when the throng of monuments was such, according to the statement of an eyewitness, that one would have said that the world in shaking itself had cast off its old garments in order to cover itself with a white vesture of churches. Irat inim ut simundus, ipsi exutiando semet, rejecta vetustate, candida ecclesiarium vestem induret. Glaber Rodolphus. A book is so soon made, costs so little, and can go so far. How can it surprise us? that all human thought flows in this channel. This does not mean that architecture will not still have a fine monument, an isolated masterpiece here and there. We may still have from time to time, under the reign of printing, a column made, I suppose, by a whole army from melted cannon, as we had under the reign of architecture, Iliads and Romanceros, Mahatbharata and Nibelungen leads, made by a whole people with rhapsodies piled up and melted together. The great accident of an architect of genius may happen in the twentieth century, like that of Dante in the thirteenth. But architecture will no longer be the social art, the collective art, the dominating art. The grand poem, the grand edifice, the grand work of humanity will no longer be built, it will be printed. And henceforth, if architecture should arise again accidentally, it will no longer be mistress. 
it will be subservient to the law of literature, which formerly received the law from it. The respective positions of the two arts will be inverted. It is certain that in architectural epochs the poems, rare it is true, resemble the monuments. In India, Vyasa is branching, strange, impenetrable as a pagoda. In Egyptian Orient, poetry has like the edifices, grandeur, and tranquillity of line. In antique Greece, beauty, serenity, calm. In Christian Europe, the Catholic majesty, the popular naivete, the rich and luxuriant vegetation of an epoch of renewal. The Bible resembles the pyramids, the Iliad the Parthenon, Homer Phidias, Dante in the thirteenth century is the last Romanesque church, Shakespeare in the sixteenth the last Gothic cathedral. Thus, to sum up what we have hitherto said, in a fashion which is necessarily incomplete and mutilated, the human race has two books, two registers, two testaments, masonry and printing, the Bible of stone and the Bible of paper. No doubt, when one contemplates these two Bibles, laid so broadly open in the centuries, it is permissible to regret the visible majesty of the writing of granite, those gigantic alphabets formulated in colonnades, in pylons, in obelisks, those sorts of human mountains which cover the world and the past, from the pyramid to the bell tower, from Cheops to Strasbourg. The past must be re-read upon these pages of marble. This book, written by architecture, must be admired and perused incessantly, but the grandeur of the edifice which printing erects in its turn must not be denied. That edifice is colossal. Some compiler of statistics has calculated that if all the volumes which have issued from the press since Gutenberg's day were to be piled one upon another, they would fill the space between the earth and the moon. But it is not that sort of grandeur of which we wish to speak. Nevertheless, when one tries to collect in one's mind a comprehensive image of the total products of printing, down to our own days, does not that total appear to us like an immense construction, resting upon the entire world, at which humanity toils without relaxation, and whose monstrous crest is lost in the profound mists of the future? It is the ant-hill of intelligence. It is the hive whither come all imaginations, those golden bees with their honey. The edifice has a thousand stories. Here and there one beholds on its staircases the gloomy caverns of science which pierce its interior. Everywhere upon its surface art causes its arabesques, rosettes, and laces to thrive luxuriantly before the eyes. There every individual work, however capricious and isolated it may seem, has its place and its projection. Harmony results from the whole. From the Cathedral of Shakespeare to the Mosque of Byron, a thousand tiny bell-towers are piled pell-mell above this metropolis of universal thought. At its base are written some ancient titles of humanity, which architecture had not registered. To the left of the entrance has been fixed the ancient bas-relief in white marble of Homer. To the right the polyglot Bible rears its seven heads. The hydra of the Roman Sarrow and some other hybrid forms, 
the Vedas and the Nibelungen bristle further on. Nevertheless, the prodigious edifice still remains incomplete. The press, that giant machine, which incessantly pumps all the intellectual sap of society, belches forth without pause fresh materials for its work. The whole human race is on the scaffoldings. Each mind is a mason. The humblest fills his hole or places his stone. Retif de la Breton brings his hod of plaster. Every day a new course rises. Independently of the original and individual contribution of each writer, there are collective contingents. The eighteenth century gives the encyclopedia. The revolution gives the moniteur. Assuredly, it is a construction which increases and piles up in endless spirals. There also are confusion of tongues, incessant activity, indefatigable labor, eager competition of all humanity, refuge promised to intelligence, a new flood against an overflow of barbarians. It is the second Tower of Babel of the human race. End of Book Five, Chapter Two Book Six, Chapter One, of the Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter One, An Impartial Glance at the Ancient Magistracy. A very happy personage in the year of grace fourteen eighty two was the noble gentleman Robert d'Estauville, Chevalier, Sieur d'Abaine, Baron de Vrie and Saint-André en la Marche, counsellor and chamberlain to the king, and guard of the provost ship of Paris. It was already nearly seventeen years since he had received from the king, on November 7, 1465, the comet year, that fine charge of the provost ship of Paris, which was reputed rather a seigneury than an office. Dignitas, says Joannes Lomnoes. Coe cum non exigua potestate politium concernente, atque prorogativis multis et juribus conjuncta est. A marvellous thing in eighty two was a gentleman bearing the king's commission, and whose letters of institution ran back to the epoch of the marriage of the natural daughter of Louis the Eleventh with Monsieur the Bastard of Bourbon. The same day in which Robert d'Estauville took the place of Jacques de Villiers in the provost-ship of Paris, Master Jean Dauvé replaced Messire Elie de Tourettes in the first presidency of the Court of Parliament. Jean Jovenel de Orsan supplanted Pierre de Morvilliers in the office of the Chancellor of France. Reynaud de Dorman ousted Pierre P. from the charge of Master of Requests in ordinary of the King's household. Now, upon how many heads had the presidency, the chancellorship, the mastership passed since Robert d'Estauville had held the provostship of Paris? It had been granted to him for safe-keeping, as the letter's patent said, and certainly he kept it well. He had clung to it. He had incorporated himself with it. He had so identified himself with it that he had escaped that fury for change which possessed Louis the Eleventh, 
a tormenting and industrious king, whose policy it was to maintain the elasticity of his power by frequent appointments and revocations. More than this, the brave Chevalier had obtained the reversion of the office for his son, and for two years already the name of the nobleman Jacques d'Estauville, Equerry, had figured beside his at the head of the register of the salary list of the provost ship of Paris. A rare and notable favor, indeed. It is true that Robert d'Estauville was a good soldier, that he had loyally raised his pennon against the League of Public Good, and that he had presented to the Queen a very marvelous stag and confectionery on the day of her entrance to Paris in fourteen. Moreover, he possessed the good friendship of Monsieur Tristan Lermette, provost of the marshals of the King's household. Hence a very sweet and pleasant existence was that of Monsieur Robert. In the first place, very good wages, to which were attached, and from which hung, like extra bunches of grapes on his vine, the revenues of the civil and criminal registries of the provostship, plus the civil and criminal revenues of the tribunals of Embus of the Châtelet, without reckoning some little toll from the bridges of Mante and of Corbeil, and the profits on the craft of chagrin-makers of Paris, on the quarters of firewood and the measurers of salt. Add to this the pleasure of displaying himself in rides about the city, and of making his fine military costume, which you may still admire sculptured on his tomb in the Abbey of Valmont in Normandy, and his morion, all embossed at Montlhery, stand out a contrast against the parti-coloured red and tawny robes of the aldermen and police. And then was it nothing to wield absolute supremacy over the sergeants of the police, the porter and watch of the Châtelet, the two auditors of the Châtelet, Auditores Castelliti, the sixteen commissioners of the sixteen quarters, the jailer of the Châtelet, the four and fioft sergeants, the hundred and twenty mounted sergeants with maces, the chevalier of the watch, with his watch, his sub-watch, his counter-watch, and his rear-watch? Was it nothing to exercise high and low justice? the right to interrogate, to hang and to draw, without reckoning petty jurisdiction in the first resort, in prima instantia, as the charters say, on that vicomte of Paris, so nobly appanaged with seven noble bailiwicks? Can anything sweeter be imagined than rendering judgments and decisions, as Monsieur Robert d'Estauville daily did in the Grand Châtelet? under the large and flattened arches of Philip Augustus, and going, as he was wont to do every evening, to that charming house situated in the Rue Galilee, in the enclosure of the royal palace, which he held in right of his wife, Madame Amboise de Loray, to repose after the fatigue of having sent some poor wretch to pass the night in that little cell of the Rue de Escorcherie which the provosts and the aldermen of Paris used to make their prison, the same being eleven feet long, seven feet and four inches wide, and eleven feet high. And not only had Monsieur Robert d'Estauville his special court as provost and vicomte of Paris, but in addition he had a share, both for eye and tooth, in the grand court of the king. There was no head in the least elevated which had not passed through his hands before it came to the headsman. 
It was he who went to seek Monsieur de Nemours at the Bastille Saint-Antoine, in order to conduct him to the hall, and to conduct to the grève Monsieur de Saint-Paul, who clamoured and resisted, to the great joy of the provost, who did not love Monsieur the constable. Here, assuredly, is more than sufficient to render a life happy and illustrious, and to deserve some day a notable page in that interesting history of the provosts of Paris, where one learns that Oudard de Villeneuve had a house in the Rue de Boucherie, that Guillaume d'Anguest purchased the Great and the Little Savoy, that Guillaume Thibault gave the nuns of saint jean his houses in the Rue Clopin, that Huguet Aubriot lived in the Hôtel du Port-Epic, and other domestic facts. Nevertheless, with so many reasons for taking life patiently and joyously, Monsieur Robert d'Estauville woke up on the morning of the 7th of January, 1482, in a very surly and peevish mood. Whence came this ill temper? He could not have told himself. Was it because the sky was grey? Or was the buckle of his old belt of motlerie badly fastened, so that it confined his provostal portliness too closely? Had he beheld ribald fellows marching in bands of four beneath his window, and setting him at defiance, in doublets but no shirts, hats without crowns, with wallet and bottle at their side? Was it a vague presentiment of the three hundred and seventy livres, sixteen sous, eight farthings, which the future king Charles the Seventh was to cut off from the provost's ship in the following year? The reader can take his choice. We, for our part, are much inclined to believe that he was in a bad humour, simply because he was in a bad humour. Moreover, it was the day after a festival, a tiresome day for everyone, and above all for the magistrate, who is charged with sweeping away all the filth, properly and figuratively speaking, which a festival day produces in Paris. And then he had to hold a sitting at the Grand Châtelet. Now we have noticed that judges in general so arrange matters that their day of audience shall also be their day of bad humour so that they may always have someone upon whom to vent it conveniently, in the name of the king, law, and justice. However, the audience had begun without him. His lieutenants, civil, criminal, and private, were doing his work, according to usage. And from eight o'clock in the morning some scores of bourgeois and bourgeoisies heaped and crowded into an obscure corner of the audience-chamber of Embas du Châtelet between a stout oaken barrier and the wall, had been gazing blissfully at the varied and cheerful spectacle of civil and criminal justice dispensed by Master Florian Barbedian, auditor of the Châtelet, lieutenant of Monsieur the Provost, in a somewhat confused and utterly haphazard manner. The hall was small, low, vaulted. A table with fleur-de-lis stood at one end, with a large armchair of carved oak, which belonged to the provost, and was empty, and a stool on the left for the auditor, Master Florian. Below sat the clerk of the court, scribbling. Opposite was the populace, and in front of the door and in front of the table were many sergeants of the provostship in sleeveless jackets of violet camlet, with white crosses. Two sergeants of the pardois aux bourgeois, clothed in their jackets of Toussaint, half red, half blue, 
were posted as sentinels before a low closed door, which was visible at the extremity of the hall behind the table. A single-pointed window, narrowly encased in the thick wall, illuminated with a pale ray of January sun two grotesque figures, the capricious demon of stone carved as a tailpiece in the keystone of the vaulted ceiling, and the judge seated at the end of the hall on the fleur-de-lis. Imagine, in fact, at the provost's table, leaning upon his elbows between two bundles of documents of cases, with his foot on the train of his robe of plain brown cloth, his face buried in his hood of white lambskin, of which his brows seemed to be of a piece, red, crabbed, winking, bearing majestically the load of fat on his cheeks which met under his chin, Master Florian Barbedienne, auditor of the Châtelet. Now the auditor was deaf. A slight defect in an auditor. Master Florian delivered judgment, nonetheless, without appeal and very suitably. It is certainly quite sufficient for a judge to have the air of listening, and the venerable auditor fulfilled this condition, the sole one in justice, all the better because his attention could not be distracted by any noise. Moreover, he had in the audience a pitiless censor of his deeds and gestures, in the person of our friend Jean Frollo Dumoulin, that little student of yesterday, that stroller whom one was sure of encountering all over Paris, anywhere except before the rostrums of the professors. "'Stay,' he said in a low tone to his companion, Robin Pouspin, who was grinning at his side, while he was making his comments on the scenes which were being unfolded before his eyes. Yonder is Jehanatan du Poisson, the beautiful daughter of the lazy dog at the Marché Neuf. Upon my soul, he is condemning her, the old rascal. He has no more eyes than ears. Fifteen sous, four farthings Parisian, for having worn two rosaries. Tis somewhat dear. Lex duri carminis. Who's that? Robin Chef de Vie, hobbermaker, for having been passed and received master of the said trade. That's his entrance money. Eh, hey, two gentlemen among these knaves. Aigle de soin autant de mêlée, two equerries. Corpus Christi. Ah, they have been playing at dice. When shall I see our rector here? A hundred livres Parisian, fine to the king. That Barbedien strikes like a deaf man, as he is. I'll be my brother, the archdeacon, if that keeps me from gaming. Gaming by day, gaming by night, living at play, dying at play, and gaming away my soul after my shirt. Holy Virgin, what damsels! One after the other, my lambs. Ambois Lucier. Isabelle La Panette, Berard-Jaronin. I know them all, by heavens. A fine, a fine! That's what will teach you to wear gilded girdles. Ten sous Parisie, you coquettes. Oh, the old snout of a judge, deaf and imbecile. Oh, Florian the dolt! Oh, Barbedian the blockhead! There he is at the table. He's eating the plaintiff. He's eating the suits. He eats, he chews, he crams, he fills himself. Fines, lost goods, 
taxes, expenses, loyal charges, salaries, damages, and interests, Gehenna, prison, and jail, and fetters with expenses are Christmas spice-cake and marsh-pan of St. John to him. Look at him, the pig! Come, good, another amorous woman! Thibault la Thibault, neither more nor less, for having come from the Rue Glatigny. What fellow is this? Geoffroy Mabon, gendarme bearing the crossbow. He has cursed the name of the father. A fine for La Thibault, a fine for Geoffroy, a fine for them both. The deaf old fool, he must have mixed up the two cases. Ten to one that he makes the wench pay for the oath and the gendarme for the amour. Attention, Robin Paspan, what are they going to bring in? Here are many sergeants. By Jupiter, all the bloodhounds of the pack are there. It must be the great beast of the hunt, a wild boar. And tis one, Robin, tis one, and a fine one, too. Eh, Clay, tis our prince of yesterday, our pope of the fools, our bell-ringer, our one-eyed man, our hunchback, our grimace, tis Quasimodo. It was he, indeed. It was Quasimodo, bound, encircled, roped, pinioned, and under good guard. The squad of policemen who surrounded him was assisted by the chevalier of the watch in person, wearing the arms of France embroidered on his breast and the arms of the city on his back. There was nothing, however, about Quasimodo except his deformity which could justify the display of halberds and arquebuses. He was gloomy, silent, and tranquil. Only now and then did his single eye cast a sly and wrathful glance upon the bonds with which he was loaded. He cast the same glance about him, but it was so dull and sleepy that the women only pointed him out to each other in derision. Meanwhile, Master Florian, the auditor, turned over attentively the document in the complaint entered against Quasimodo, which the clerk handed him, and having thus glanced at it, appeared to reflect for a moment. Thanks to this precaution, which he always was careful to take at the moment when on the point of beginning an examination, he knew beforehand the names, titles, and misdeeds of the accused, made cut-and-dried responses to questions foreseen, and succeeded in extricating himself from all the windings of the interrogation without allowing his deafness to be too apparent. The written charges were to him what the dog is to the blind man. If his deafness did happen to betray him here and there, by some incoherent apostrophe or some unintelligible question, it passed for profundity with some and for imbecility with others. In neither case did the honor of the magistracy sustain any injury, for it is far better that a judge should be reputed imbecile or profound than deaf. Hence he took great care to conceal his deafness from the eyes of all and he generally succeeded so well that he had reached the point of deluding himself, which is, by the way, easier than is supposed. All hunchbacks walk with their heads held high, all stutterers harangue, all deaf people speak low. As for him, he believed, at the most, that his ear was a little refractory. It was the sole concession which he made on this point to public opinion, in his moments of frankness and examination of his conscience. 
Having then thoroughly ruminated Quasimodo's affair, he threw back his head and half closed his eyes, for the sake of more majesty and impartiality, so that, at that moment, he was both deaf and blind. A double condition, without which no judge is perfect. It was in this magisterial attitude that he began the examination. "'Your name?' Now this was a case which had not been provided for by law, where a deaf man should be obliged to question a deaf man. Quasimodo, whom nothing warned that a question had been addressed to him, continued to stare intently at the judge and made no reply. The judge, being deaf, and being in no way warned of the deafness of the accused, thought that the latter had answered, as all accused do in general, and therefore he pursued, with his mechanical and stupid self-possession, "'Very well. And your age?' Again Quasimodo made no reply to this question. The judge supposed that it had been replied to, and continued, "'Now, your profession!' Still the same silence. The spectators had begun, meanwhile, to whisper together and to exchange glances. "'That will do,' went on the imperturbable auditor, when he supposed that the accused had finished his third reply. "'You are accused before us, primo, of nocturnal disturbance, secundo, of a dishonorable act of violence upon the person of a foolish woman.' Improjudicium metricus, tertio, of rebellion and disloyalty towards the arches of the police of our lord the king. Explain yourself upon all these points. Clerk, have you written down what the prisoner has said thus far? At this unlucky question a burst of laughter rose from the clerk's table, caught by the audience, so violent, so wild, so contagious, so universal, that the two deaf men were forced to perceive it. Quasimodo turned round, shrugging his hump with disdain, while Master Florian, equally astonished, and supposing that the laughter of the spectators had been provoked by some irreverent reply from the accused, rendered visibly to him by that shrug of the shoulders, apostrophized him in dignity. "'You have uttered a reply, knave, which deserves the halter. Do you know to whom you are speaking?' This sally was not fitted to arrest the explosion of general merriment. It struck all as so whimsical and so ridiculous that the wild laughter even attacked the sergeants of the parois à bourgeois, a sort of pikemen, whose stupidity was part of their uniform. Quasimodo alone preserved his seriousness, for the good reason that he understood nothing of what was going on around him. The judge, more and more irritated, thought it his duty to continue in the same tone, hoping thereby to strike the accused with a terror which should react upon the audience and bring it back to respect. "'So this is as much as to say, perverse and thieving knave that you are, that you permit yourself to be lacking in respect towards the auditor of the Châtelet, to the magistrate committed to the popular police of Paris, charged with searching out crimes, delinquencies, and evil conduct, with controlling all trades and interdicting monopoly, with maintaining the pavements, with debarring the hucksters of chickens, poultry, and waterfowl, 
of superintending the measuring of faggots and other sorts of wood, of purging the city of mud and the air of contagious maladies, in a word, with attending continually to public affairs, without wages or hope of salary. Do you know that I am called Florian Barbedian, actual lieutenant to Monsieur the Provost, and moreover commissioner, inquisitor, controller, and examiner, with equal power in provostship, bailiwick, preservation, and inferior court of judicature? There was no reason why a deaf man talking to a deaf man should stop. God knows where and when Master Florian would have landed, when thus launched at full speed in lofty eloquence, if the low door at the extreme end of the room had not suddenly opened, and given entrance to the provost in person. At his entrance Master Florian did not stop short, but, making a half-turn on his heels, and aiming at the provost the harangue with which he had been withering Quasimodo a moment before, Monseigneur said he, I demand such penalty as you shall deem fitting against the prisoner here present, for the grave and aggravated offence against the court. And he seated himself, utterly breathless, wiping away the great drops of sweat which fell from his brow and drenched, like tears, the parchment spread out before him. Monsieur Robert d'Estouville frowned and made a gesture so imperious and significant to Quasimodo, that the deaf man in some measure understood it. The provost addressed him with severity. "'What have you done that you have been brought hither, knave?' The poor fellow, supposing that the provost was asking his name, broke the silence which he habitually preserved, and replied in a harsh and guttural voice, "'Quasimodo!' The reply matched the question so little that the wild laugh began to circulate once more, and Monsieur Robert exclaimed, red with wrath, "'Are you mocking me also, you errant knave?' "'Bell-ringer of Notre-Dame,' replied Quasimodo, supposing that what was required of him was to explain to the judge who he was. "'Bell-ringer!' interpolated the provost would waked up early enough to be in a sufficiently bad temper, as we have said, not to require to have his fury inflamed by such strange responses. "'Bell-ringer! I'll play you a chime of rods on your back through the squares of Paris! Do you hear, knave?' "'If it is my age that you wish to know,' said Quasimodo, "'I think that I shall be twenty at St. Martin's Day.' This was too much. The provost could no longer restrain himself. "'Ah! You are scoffing at the provost-ship, wretch! Messieurs the sergeants of the mace, you will take me this knave to the pillory of the greve. You will flog him and turn him for an hour. He shall pay me for it, tete dieu, and I order that the present judgment shall be cried, with the assistance of four sworn trumpeters, in the seven Castellanis of the Vicomte of Paris. The clerk set to work incontinently to draw up the account of the sentence. Ventre Dieu, tis well adjudged, cried the little scholar, Jehan Frollo de Moulin, from his corner. The provost turned and fixed his flashing eyes once more on Quasimodo. 
I believe the knave said ventre dieu. Clerk, add twelve deniers Parisian for the oath, and let the vestry of Saint Eustache have the half of it. I have a particular devotion for Saint Eustache. In a few minutes the sentence was drawn up. Its tenor was simple and brief. The customs of the provostship and the vicomte had not yet been worked over by President Thibault Berlet and by Roger Barnet, the king's advocate. They had not been obstructed, at that time, by that lofty hedge of quibbles and procedures, which the two jurisconsults planted there at the beginning of the sixteenth century. All was clear, expeditious, explicit. One went straight to the point, then, and at the end of every path there was immediately visible, without thickets and without turnings, the wheel, the gibbet, or the pillory. One at least knew whither one was going. The clerk presented the sentence to the provost, who affixed his seal to it, and departed to pursue his round of the audience-hall, in a frame of mind which seemed destined to fill all the jails in Paris that day. Jean Frollo and Robin Pospin laughed in their sleeves. Quasimodo gazed on the whole with an indifferent and astonished air. However, at the moment when Master Florian Barbedien was reading the sentence in his turn, before signing it, the clerk felt himself moved with pity for the poor wretch of a prisoner, and in the hope of obtaining some mitigation of the penalty, he approached as near the auditor's ear as possible, and said, pointing to Quasimodo, that man is deaf. He hoped that this community of infirmity would awaken Master Florian's interest in behalf of the condemned man. But, in the first place, we have already observed that Master Florian did not care to have his deafness noticed. In the next place, he was so hard of hearing that he did not catch a single word of what the clerk said to him. Nevertheless, he wished to have the appearance of hearing and replied, "'Ah, ah, that is different. I did not know that. An hour more of the pillory in that case.' And he signed the sentence thus modified. "'Tis well done,' said Robin Pouspin, who cherished a grudge against Quasimodo. "'That will teach him to handle people roughly.' End of book six. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Chapter 1 